This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 442, flashback to X-Men Age of Apocalypse, part 1. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. This is episode 442. It's our flashback to X-Men Age of Apocalypse Part 1 episode. I'm your host, Adam Chapman. We'll jump into the uh, episode in just a moment as I'm joined by Paul Scores and Nathan Strzok to talk about the Age of Apocalypse. This is something we've wanted to do for for years. Uh, We just never had a chance to do it. Um... This was actually, uh, we got a, a recent, relatively recent request from uh, listener Tim Riley, who's kind of said, you know, you guys have talked about doing Age of Apocalypse Spotlight for a long time, but you never did it. What the hell? Uh, maybe not what the hell, but <laughs> basically the question was, like, is this ever going to happen? Is this going to come? Um, so I had uh, discussed it with, uh, with Nate and Paul over the, the winter holidays, and we were like, okay, we're going to try and get this done in January. Um, so we recorded this on, uh, I guess, the evening of the 15th. We sat down, and um, Nate was on, stru- on uh, Skype and uh, Paul was uh, with me in the, in the quote-unquote studio and uh, we ended up recording for about three and a half hours so I ended up deciding to split this into two equal halves um, so we talk about a lot of parts of the event we go through um, in the original letters pages uh, or called exposition it's not an actual letters page but it's kind of information about x titles that are on sale etc um in the first month of releases from age of apocalypse and they had this map of what, what this kind of destroyed wor- uh, world was supposed to look like um because of what apocalypse had done so we actually go into a little bit of depth talking about that um kind of talking about our original kind of what brought us to age of apocalypse and our, our personal story and how it resonates with us in certain ways um the the whole episode is is an enjoyable listen, I would say, but um, this is the first half, so it's the first hour, 45 or so, and then the next half will be up uh, probably at the end of the week, probably episode 444, I think is what the plan is. Um, so that'll be a, a good week for Age of Apocalypse uh, as we get a chance to talk about it. Um, I do recommend people co- kind of go back if they want to listen to episode 250, uh, which was about two years ago now, where we had a conversation with Scott Lobdell, and he talked about the genesis of... Uh, Age of Apocalypse a bit, which is interesting stuff. Um, so I do recommend kind of going back and listening to that. Uh, we also have a conversation with uh, Fabian Nicieso that I had, um, I think it's in like the 260s, 270s, and I think we touched a little bit on Age of Apocalypse as well. Uh, I've tried, and it's interesting, even my most recent episode, I guess episode uh, 240, uh, sorry, 440, I should say, with Mark Buckingham, we talked briefly about how uh, at the time when Chris Bacala was you know, doing Generation X and Generation Next, they had Mark Buckingham was actually the English of the on those books so uh we've over the years been able to talk to a lot of these creators who are involved in this um in this event we even had a conversation uh i think it was maybe about a year and a bit ago uh with steve scross uh who is the illustrator on x-man um so kind of talking about the, you know creating the character for this book so um you can kind of check that out as well uh that episode uh, for steve scross was episode 328 from december 2015 um so over the years, I've been able to talk to people involved in the event in different ways. Uh, it's kind of interesting to kind of look back and see, you know, what they've had to say about it. Um, you know, it's definitely for me a kind of a seminal event. Um, I have very fond memories, which I talk about in the episode when I was uh, in grade six, uh, reading these comics outside and. Uh, you know, back then you, you would trade comics with friends or you would pass them around and try and read them because you couldn't buy them all. And depending on where your comp, not even comic book shop at that point for me, but where my spinner rack was, where I was able to get comics either at a, I think at a shopper's uh, drug mart, which was a Canadian drugstore, uh, or at, um, 
it was was it Supercenter or some sort of uh, Loblaws store, which again is a Canadian brand, so U.S. listeners won't know what I'm talking about. But it's basically a, a grocery store uh, that always had a spinner rack, and then my convenience store had a spinner rack. So those are kind of my three areas where I was able to get comics. Uh, it wasn't until years later. And actually, this is something I forgot to mention on the show, that uh, I was able to buy the rest of the Age of Apocalypse because I only had a few books, but I really had fond memories and really enjoyed them. So I think around 98, um, my comic book store was closing down. I had two locations in Toronto, and the one that was easiest for me to get to was closing down. And I remember picking up like almost all of the Age of Apocalypse for, I think it was like 75% off or something. I think I got almost all of it for like 25 bucks. Um and which is really easy to do. Now, obviously, you can do digital. There's so many, so many different methods of being able to collect and read uh, Age of Apocalypse, which is, again, is something we talk about in the show as well, because even when we're going through things, we all have different formats as we dis- as we have the conversation. I mean, during the conversation, I'm looking at my omnibus. Uh, Paul's looking at my com- complete Age of Apocalypse epic collections from 2005. And then we have um, Nate on Skype, and he's, for the most part, flipping through uh, digital copies of the single issues of Age of Apocalypse, which I bought on a comicsology sale about two years ago. So uh, it's interesting how many different formats you can read this in um, and kind of get that enjoyment level. Anyways, without further ado, let's jump into the first uh, part of our episode. But one last thing before we do is that you can always email us at comicshenanigans at gmail.com. Uh, unfortunately, I sometimes I'm a little slow in responding, but uh, I do check them and do eventually get back to you. Um, just ask Tim Riley. Um, you can also like us on Facebook, rate and review us on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes, and you can also listen to us on Stitcher. So thanks again, and without further ado, let's jump into our conversation about Age of Apocalypse. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. We're talking about Age of Apocalypse today. I'm your host, Adam Chapman, and I'm joined next to me by... Paul Scorez. And on Skype, we have... Nathan, Nathan Struck. Woohoo! Getting the team back together. So this is a, a listener-requested episode. Uh, we, for, for years, were talking about how we were going to finally do an Age of Apocalypse uh, conversation episode. Uh, it's funny, uh, my friend Leon's been asking for it for years, and then I get this email from a, from a listener, and he's like, oh, now you're doing it. A listener asked for it, and now you drop everything to do this episode. But I've been asking for years and nothing. But finally, it's happening. So, to talk about the Age of Apocalypse... Um, uh, before we actually jump, jump into the event itself, I want to kind of do a little bit of kind of an introduction on how we first came to read part or all of Age of Apocalypse. So, Paul, why don't you start us off? <sighs> well, my story's not going to be very exciting at all. Um, like, again, my first foray in the comic in general was Onslaught, which is afterwards. Um, but after getting into Onslaught, I had met up with uh, a friend of mine who lived on my street at the time, and he had the older stuff, the Fatal Attractions, the Age of Apocalypse, hey, if you're digging this stuff, why don't you read some of my back issues and enjoy uh, some stuff that came before. Hmm. So um, I had picked up, I don't believe he had everything, so again, my overall knowledge was kind of spotty in some parts, but he gave me, like I think, the primary books, uh, the X-Men Prime, the X-Men Omega, um, and, and the key books for the story, but not every last tie-in or all Excalibur books, for example. Um, <laughs> We're going to be dumping on Excalibur today. <laughs> or Generation Next, for example. Um, so that was kind of my first go age. But I only read it once, like, a lifetime ago. So I, I, I've since gone borrowed the epics from you and kind of refreshed my memory as much as I could leading up to it. But that was kind of my Age of Apocalypse story. Okay. Nate? Um... Yeah, so uh, I started getting into comics, uh, you know, not not here or there, but collecting just around Marvel vs. DC. 
So um, in and around this time, and then I went back and was doing back issue stuff as I was reading more and eventually an onslaught and realizing the different talents of artists that were out there. And I, you know, back in the day, uh, it was all about the art for me, and I would look and see covers, and very often I would find a cover by Adam Kubert or Joe Madrera, and then open it up and realize that it was Roger Cruz again, <laughs> <laughs> you know, or, or Ian Churchill, who actually improved quite a bit. I don't like him in this era. So I was hunting for really cool art, and I just was in the X-Men bin, and I came across in Uncanny X-Men that my comic, book, my comic book store had inserted other X-Men titles into Uncanny, and I was confused. I'm like, why is this astonishing X-Men in Uncanny? It's clearly been sorted wrong for alphabetical reasons. And he's like, no, 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 that's X-Men. And I just I couldn't understand. I had no idea what the event was. And to my memory, I saw Astonishing Number One and bought that first. But the issue that stands out to me the most that I had to grab was um, I was a huge Rogue fan, mm. uh, not as much now. But it was Astonishing Issue Three. Okay. And that's with Rogue fighting the Infinites, uh, just boldly on the cover. Great colors, very crisp inks, and uh, I think Townsend's on that. And it's a Madrera cover, who quickly became my favorite artist. So I, I just started picking them up. And after I got all the Astonishings, I was you know picking up uh, Amazings as well, and. I was just in the middle of a storyline, it felt, and I, again, I had no idea that the X-Men books had been interrupted, that this was um, like a sideways lateral movement for the Marvel Universe for, for a little while, or at least for the X-Men books, and uh, I know the Sliders, Sliders was on TV, so I kind of was used to when, when parallel universes happen, and I was sliders, just, my mind, wow. sorry, go ahead. Yeah, sliders, that's awesome, I forgot about that show, that's, that's amazing. Yeah, so my mind was like, I was readied for this kind of thing, I'd grown up on Star Trek, and I was I was okay with being thrown in into the middle of something and not having the beginning and middle of the end kind of, of, of drawn out for me, but uh, it just drew me in. I wanted to know more and more, and I, I was so excited by it. And this is, again, a guy who had only read a few issues of Uncanny up until, and this must have been before Onslaught even, that I was picking these up, and uh, I couldn't get enough. And, uh, you know, I was in my um, early, early to mid-teens, and... Um, I fell in love with it, and so then I had to get amazing, as I said, and then I had to get more and more and more and have my hands on more. So that's just kind of how I filled in my, the blanks, and uh, I still don't have a complete issue of these single issues, uh, complete collection of the single issues, but uh, it has always stuck with me. And I, in fact, it, it, it impacted me so much in high school that I started doing projects and assignments were influenced by the things I was reading in, in Age of Apocalypse, so um, very much a big part of my, my teenage years. Wow. So it's interesting. So I'm, I guess, of the three of us, the only one who actually read some of the issues as they were being published. Um, I remember I had a few friends who read comics. I wasn't really reading comics at the time or not in any kind of regular fashion. And I remember, um, in, I was, I guess, in grade six when these issues were coming out. And uh, I remember, you know, we, we were having like a reading class outside and someone had a few issues of, I think, Factor X or something. Um, so I was just kind of looking at them. And then at the same time, I would see X-Men comics at the, at the store. So I remember picking up like Astonishing number one. Uh, amazing number one at uh, just on spinner racks uh weapon x number two factor x three like just kind of weird kind of single issues here and there and that really kind of got me into really liking the event but it wasn't till years later that i actually was able to kind of go back and kind of fill it out i don't think it was till maybe 98 99 till i actually went back and filled out the collection and reread it all uh but it's been huge for me because again it was one of those first comics i wasn't buying comics regularly until onslaught or just before 
but uh, I definitely had this strong memory of reading all these comics with my friends um, during the Age of Apocalypse and wanting to see their issues because they had issues I didn't have. And that's, again, that's something that we forget now is that when you can go to a comic book store, you can kind of find everything you need. But when you only had a spinner rack, if your spinner rack only had a certain amount of issues, that's what you were stuck with. And then so someone else would be going to a different store and they come across different issues. So you're kind of reading each other's comics, which... Again, I think that's kind of a lost art because you can't really get comics at just at a convenience store anymore or at a spinner rack. Um, so that's kind of my first kind of uh, impression of it. I mean, to go back, I mean, the Legion Quest event happened in December 94, and then you have Age of Apocalypse taking place from January to, to April 95. So, I mean, it's been just about 22 years now since the event started, which is crazy to me because it does not feel like it's been that long. Like, I look at comics from the 80s and 70s, and they, they look more dated, but the 90s, Comics, besides the fact that they look 90s in terms of the ex the artistic excess, um, they don't feel that old. I don't know if you guys disagree or agree with that. Or I'd say in terms of storytelling, the Liddell, you know, Claremont, and he's copied from Claremont, over-rendering, over-expositioning um, everything, over-narrative of everything. I, don't, I definitely think that we have aged past this. I don't, I don't think that comics flow the same way that they did. You know, I'm looking at pages here, just flipping through my collection, and there's so many words packed into each page that you could spend like a minute reading a page, whereas now you spend a few seconds and you're on the next page because it's more cinematic now. So I'd say they. Um, I'm not saying it's negative. I'm not saying it's a, they're bad books, although some of them certainly are. Um, but I, I think it's. Def I can tell the difference, I, I, you know, between this and, and current comics. Mm -hmm. So let's. I guess start with uh, with Legion Quest. So I mean, I guess actually as a bit of a preface, um, Paul and I, I guess two years ago now, got to speak with Scott Lobdell about the creation of the Age of Apocalypse. So I do recommend people go back and uh, look for that episode. It's episode 250 of Comic Shenanigans, where he talks about a little bit of the uh, the genesis of the event and how it kind of came to be uh, this big kind of four month event, which at the time was kind of unheard of. The idea that you know they have the, the top selling books in, in comics were the X Men books, and then they kind of cancel them all and then they have all these new offshoots which nowadays we're used to these types of publicity stunts but at the time was very much a radical idea uh, and people didn't know that they were going to get the x-men books back which sounds like a naive thing to say but at the time like comics media wasn't the same i don't think comics readers were as jaded either um i think the idea of, it, of comics being a business first and foremost hadn't really seeped into a lot of readers minds yet whereas now we are so jaded about the mechanics and business practices of these companies that if they tried something like this again, which they kind of did a few years ago... Um, well, Secret Wars was this. Yeah, I guess Secret Wars was this, yeah. But it was not like this. Like it No, no, it's different, but it's a similar thing where Secret Wars mm -hmm. took over everything with Secret Wars. Like the entire Marvel Universe was this. But we also knew we were getting right. a Marvel Universe at the end. Like we, yeah, you're not you're not staying to this. You know it's going to revert back to some well, shape or form. And the Marvel universe hadn't been absorbed, right? It was the X Men books that were gone. And and uh, if you read Iron Man, I mean, who read Iron Man? I know, but if you read <laughs> Iron Man in ninety four, ninety five, then you were still reading Iron Man. That's true. That's a good point. But I mean, I guess people didn't know what they what what kind of X books we were even going to get out. The solicits were different back then. No internet back then. No. in terms of knowing what the bleep was going like, on. Right? The month before it starts is when people find out about it. Like it's it's like last minute stuff, which is a lost art because now we know everything. Like we know about the the event coming after the event after the event we're reading right now. Like it's it's too crazy with the news cycle. I know. It's... Uh, whereas this is back at a time where you could actually be surprised by things. Things happen. I Sorry. How well aware, I just have a question for you two, how well aware were you of the financial uh, status of Marvel at this time? 
uh, you know, it's funny, funny you mention that. I was only aware of it due to uh, playing Overpower. Right. And and because the, 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 the people I was close with who ran the ranking system at the time were working with Marvel closely to, to do the ranking system and win prizes, and, and Marvel had been given the game uh, from Flare Skybox, who gave up on it, and, you know, at that time, we knew Marvel was in trouble. They weren't interested in, in very much, and that's when they started dumping, you know, movie rights to random studios to try and resurge, and it, it was a very challenging time, And I, but yeah, I was sort of I knew that, not through the comics. Because I wasn't aware at all until a little bit later, until After Age, until after um, Apocalypse, uh, um, sorry, um, Onslaught, and it was only then that I started realizing, like, this this is all ways to jumpstart and shake things up and get more readers, and I suppose if you were aware of their troubles at the time, maybe all the more so you'd be like, maybe this won't go back to the other version of Marvel. Like, like again, um, not only just uncertain in terms of solicitations, we don't know what's next or what the end is from the beginning, but will Marvel just kind of go out with a bang and this is the last version of X-Men we get? Like, I, Adam, what were you aware of? Were you? I guess you were younger. Yeah, I was younger. I, was, I wasn't aware at all. Like, I mean, in terms of, you know, what Marvel the company was, yeah, I don't think I was aware of anything until maybe a year and a half later around the onslaught time as well. Um, I don't think I, it ever occurred to me that it was... As a kid, you don't really think of it as like a company. You just think of these comics come out. <laughs> like, you know, it's it's not any more complicated than that. And uh, it wasn't until later that I kind of found out more about you know how what the business part was. And uh, I mean, when when um, they had Marvel, you know, kind of doing Heroes Reborn again, which is about a year and a half after this, that's when people didn't know what was going to happen with Marvel because there was a lot of problems. And just for context, I suppose for some of your younger listeners, uh, Marvel declared bankruptcy at, at this point too, yeah. didn't it? Yeah. In the later later nineties, yeah, was um, it 90s? and they had to get was bought it 96, out. Six ninety seven, yeah, something like trouble. that. Yeah, big trouble. So this is yeah, so th- a little bit before it. I guess they actually were that bad, but it, I mean, it was definitely like a big sales thing. It's interesting too. It's because of Age of Apocalypse that we had. Um, the really bad um, Scarlet Spider books when it was just Scarlet Spider like took taking over for two months uh, before Ben Riley became Spider Man. They had two months where it was just you know Web of Scarlet Spider, Amazing Scarlet Spider, and it was because of the massive success of Age of Apocalypse. And marketing was saying, "Well, hold on a second. If we're going to have Ben Riley be Spider Man, before we do that, we should spin him off as Scarlet Spider and do it like we did with the X Men." So the X Men are kind of to blame for that. It's just amazing to look at Marvel the way it is now. It's been purchased by Disney. It's part of this giant multi-billion-dollar conglomerate. Everyone knows the Marvel characters now. Third-tier characters like Iron Man and Thor are now Halloween costumes. Um, the, the debates I hear—I'm a school teacher in my school—are not about you know who is the best character. Uh, Batman from the 1990, you know, 89 Batman film, or, you know, um, the, <laughs> what's, what's that movie called with um, uh, Bruce Lee's kid who got shot and killed? I don't know. What? Um, he died in it. Brandon Lee. Oh, Brand- oh, The Crow. The Crow, yeah. Like, The Crow is so topical, right? Who's better, The Crow or Batman 89? Like, those weren't the conversations we hear now. Now it's like, who can beat up Thor? Do you think the Hulk could do it? Like, most of the conversations are geared towards what Marvel heroes are and how great they are. And there was a time when Marvel could have disappeared and sold off each of their IPs to different companies, and DC could have bought a few here, and, you know, um, Image could have purchased some of the properties had they put the money together, like, if it had gone that far. It's, it's no one really can think of it that way because Marvel is such a big titan of the industry now. Yeah. 
I remember my dad at some point, I guess this might have been 97, 98, but he was like, so I guess you're not going to be able to read those Spider-Man comics much longer. I'm like, thanks, Dad. I'm like, I know you don't want me to read comics, but, you know, don't wish ill on this company that's going through bankruptcy. My mom was kind of happy about it, too. Yeah, she's like, you're going to save a lot of money. And I was like, oh, no. <laughs> I don't want to save money this way. Yeah, no, for sure. Anyway, yeah, so uh, sorry for that kind of derailment, but I just kind of wanted to get the historical context of the time because it did feel like Marvel was doing a lot of different random things or weird extreme things at this time to get things jump-started, I, I suppose, right? Absolutely, but it's interesting, too, because this event is so insular. Like, it doesn't really... I mean, obviously some characters end up kind of coming from this because they were successful and popular, but for the most part, it just kind of happens in its own bubble and then it's over. Yeah. Which is kind of interesting because if it happened now, that would never happen. Like they would, they would have multiple, multiple spinoffs and, and sequels and all this stuff. Like the fact that it took them ten years to do a sequel miniseries is kind of mind-boggling. Like not, not that I'm complaining because I never wanted them to go back and I never really liked that ten-year anniversary miniseries. But the fact that they waited that long is kind of impressive because Marvel usually cannot wait to go back. <laughs> I suppose they're like Disney in that way, that they keep mining their past for nostalgia. Oh, and Nintendo absolutely. also. Yeah, no, absolutely. They're, they're nostalgia-fueled machines. <laughs> but it's it's interesting, too, because the writers and the editors of the day are mining the nostalgia from their day. This is why you get a lot of stuff from um, Brian Michael Bendis talking about the, the Luke Cage comics that he read, or the fact that we keep trying to reset Spider-Man back to a time when it's like the Gwen Stacy era. Even if Gwen doesn't come back, it's still trying to get that Peter Parker that all these guys grew up with and girls grew up with. And um, eventually, and we're seeing it more and more now, aren't we, with Secret Wars having these kind of soft reboots and trying to bring back the 90s X-Men mm-hmm. um, and I don't think it's been doing very successful I, I think that maybe perhaps the 90s X-Men should stay in the 90s I don't think that it works to kind of bring them back into this time period Yeah, maybe X- that's X-Men reason to lost. stay with- sorry go ahead no sorry I, I interrupted but I was just saying the X-Men are kind of lost well they are and that's for a whole bunch of other reasons right like Ike Perlmutter um, the, the head of Marvel right he hates that the the licenses are over at, at Fox and at Sony to a certain extent and he's been trying to kind of I guess in their own way hurts those movies by not cross-promoting with toys and uh, and comics and uh, I feel like the fans are the, really the only ones who are getting hurt by that or, or yeah, affected 100%, by that 100% so Legion Quest what is this? <laughs> it's uh it's, it's interesting to me because as a kid I had, even when I got a chance to read this, I had no real context for who Legion was. Like, I had never read New Mutants back in the day. I didn't understand any of that stuff. So, like, the fact that Xavier had a kid was still kind of like, what? What did I miss? Like, but as a kid, again, it's one of those things where, as an adult, I I like to kind of know things. As a kid, it was just more exciting to know that there was all these stories I didn't know but could know at some point. Like, I was never put off by what I didn't know. I was just almost more excited by it. How does, how, does a kid, how does a guy with no hair produce the kid with the craziest hair of all time? <laughs> Is he going Super Saiyan? But what's, what's happening with the hair here? Doesn't the gene for baldness come to the mom's line? Uh, so, so whether you have hair or not, it's from your mom? Is that what it is? Okay, maybe. Are they doing that? It doesn't, the, this doesn't the matter. I'm sorry. Rocking that hair to you in there, is he? Oh, the Legion TV show? I'm not sure if he's going to have the same Legion No, there's hair. no way. There's no way. It's an interesting storyline, like Legion Quest. Like, it's actually... It's four issues, but it feels like it could have been one. Like, And this is back in a time where usually there's a lot still happening in issues and it wasn't decompression. But really the fight is like, 
you know, Legion is creating a time bubble, and the X-Men try to stop him for an indeterminate reason. And then they're, then they're all transported to the past, but they, everyone kind of forgets who they are, and then they, they kind of realize who they are, and then they converge and try to stop Legion from killing Magneto. That's kind of it, but there's four issues of this. Yeah, and some derivative uh, cruise art, which, uh, again... It's, you can look at panels and you can see he's like he took that from Jim Lee and you can look at another panel and you can see he took that from one of the Cooper brothers usually Andy um, I, I love it I can't help but love it uh, this is before Cruz I think really gets more and more cartoony mm-hmm. but um, it's so derivative <laughs> it's interesting too that I think as a storyline like they start like in the middle of a battle and then you get all this kind of exposition to kind of bring you up to the battle uh, it's, just, a lot, it's, yeah. it's very awkwardly paced I find. and it's interesting too that this is a storyline that um, Scott Lobdell created. He plotted it, but he didn't actually script it. Um, so you have other people kind of pitching in, and there's yeah, good, Mark Wade, right? Well, yeah, Mark Wade scripting uh, Uncanny. You have uh, Fabian Nicieza doing the X Men issues, which I think were the stronger of the of the issues, to be honest, because uh, I think he gets a lot more of the character stuff. Um, and plus, I mean, the issues of X Men by Andy Kubert are gorgeous. Like it's very '90s Adam, uh, sorry Andy Kubert, but it's still awesome. <laughs> Um, I think both the brothers are unbelievable at this time, and uh, I kind of uh, miss this. I feel like they're they're rushed a lot more now, especially Adam. Um, Andy's still kind of very similar, but uh, Adam's stuff's never been the same. No. Uh, any ma- major thoughts about Legion Quest? I don't need to. I don't think we need to spend a lot of time on Legion Quest. There's some Ron Garney art, which isn't doesn't really look like Ron Garney. Uh, on, no, on- well, no one does. I mean, Dotson, for goodness' sake, like Dotson looks more like. Um, uh, what's the artist of uh, X Fact or Factor X? Epting. Epting, yeah. Because I wonder if they share an inker or something. Because it's these these thick black lines and lots of cross hatching um, and line shading that makes Dotson's art look much darker. I kind of prefer it actually. Well, well here's here, here's a scene here. Oh, the creepiest issue ever. Yeah. Okay. Um, where Legion seduces his mom. Yeah, that's weird. That's uh, in Uncanny X Men three twenty one or sorry three twenty two. Uh, part three of Legion Quest. Uh, there's a shot where uh, Legion shows up uh, and confronts his young, the younger version of his mom. But then he takes on the image of Charles, and then he basically like seduces her, and it's super creepy and weird. Like he starts making out with his mom. Yeah, I don't, I didn't get why that had to happen. <laughs> it's one of those things where I'm like, who wrote this? Why? Why did they write this? Like, do you remember someone this? with this? Someone with this serious edible complex, apparently. I guess it's super bizarre, and I guess. It's uh, it's it's written by well, plot by Lubdell again, and Mark Wade did the dialogue. This is not the Mark Wade I know. Like, like who, who like who who greenlit this? Yeah, what? I guess I'm reading this. It was it was one thing out of it that was just why is this happening? It's just it's really weird and awkward. There's no reason to happen. No, no reason at all. Like right. it's super awkward and. Is that what I think it is? Is this happening? Why? Yeah, like, how would you even... Yeah, it's so weird. Uh, So let's move on from that. Uh, (laughs) uh, An issue I do like is uh, X-Men 41, which is uh, the fourth part of uh, Legion Quest, with some beautiful art by uh, by Andy Kubert. Not such great art by Ron Garney. Um, And Fabian Nicieso does it. And it's... uh, I really like this issue. This is kind of everything I like about this era of X-Men. Uh, there's a lot of a lot of shouting, a lot of energy. A lot, there's like some Shi'ar. A lot of text boxes. A lot of text boxes. Uh, a nice like apocalypse looking awesome kind of in shadow. Um, it's a really kind of cool storyline of 
you know, just a good action issue with some good pathos as well, although a ton of dialogue. Thoughts, guys? Yeah. Now, it's interesting, too, that uh, what I like about the, uh, this issue is that when you f- see the uh, the crystallization wave where everything kind of gets... Uh, um, is it Emcron? It's Emcron crystal, Emcron, right? yep. Okay. As a kid... Is it? <laughs> well, okay, here's the thing. As a kid, I always thought it was M- like Macron crystal because of the way it was written. And I never made the connection as a kid that it was the same Emcron crystal that was on the TV show. I don't know why. I never made that connection as a oh, kid. Okay. I just read it differently than, I, than it's spoken, so I didn't really make that connection. I do like the last page of the issue where you have all the different um, you know teams that at the time that were and what they were doing as they were being kind of crystallized. You have Wolverine about to pop the claw into Sabretooth. Uh, you have X-Force doing something. Who knows? Um, but I, and like, you have like the, 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 the cover of Generation X because they had no idea what they were doing at the time because I think they had like three issues of Generation X that came out before they just changed it. Yeah, it was brand new. Which is so weird. Like They just started a book. Let's just totally just throw it away. Yeah, and that's like Labdell and Bachalo coming together and doing their own thing, and they were quite excited for it. And, and then, I guess, Labdell or whoever else was heading up the storyline was just kind of like, let's not do that for a while, and let's do four issues and, and throw them up to an alternative dimension. And the, the, you don't even know who the characters are yet. Like, what a weird time. Yeah. Very weird. Now, I remember as a kid, when I was trying to collect Legion Quest, the hardest issue to find was Cable 20, because it wasn't like a an actual Legion Quest issue. I mean, it was a pretty important tie-in. Even one of the issues says, read this with Cable 20. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't numbered, so as a kid, I remember being like, this was the hard one to find, uh, which has some Ian Churchill art, and it's so over the top. Well, yeah, that ridiculous spaceship they arrived in, what the hell is that thing? It's Grim Vulcan. He, uh, Cable had a, had a giant ship, you know. The, these things happened in the 90s, man. And, uh, like, I don't know, what are your thoughts about this, uh, Nate? The hat, the beret that Domino's wearing. Domino wears a, a big beret. Look, my, I don't want to seem too harsh, but for my thoughts on this is, if you want to get into starting to read Age of Apocalypse, you should do it similarly to, I think, what I did and just get into it and start reading it and do a sliders, you know, do a, a kind of an alternate reality thing that just pops up and you don't know what's going on and you just kind of have to feel it out. And if someone could tell you just, look, this is an alternate reality where Xavier was killed and Magneto let the X-Men premise needs to be. I think that, was it Wolverine 90, the one where he popped? Ops the Claws has that fight, that final fight with the, with the Sabretooth. That's right. That, that kind of stuff is so much cooler um, than the actual prelude. Hmm. Okay. Well, uh, before I, I leave it then, I do want to... Uh, this is more for you, Nate. Um, there's a great piece of uh, classic 90s romance uh, with uh, Cable and Domino when he's like, shut up and kiss me, and just grabs her. Very 90s. Very aggressive. Very aggressive in that issue of Cable. And whenever I read it, I'm like, yeah, Nate would, Nate would hate this. Or Nate would make fun of this. I'm one of the two. One thing I, I did like, though, like reading the epic collections that you lent me, Adam, um, at the back of the prelude one, it looks at each core issue, that, like, you know, X-Men, Wolverine, Cable, X-Force, blah, 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 and it gives you the snapshot of what the book's going to transform into and almost a, the mission statement of that book. Yeah. So I do like that when they did plot this and plan this this madness, that they said, hey, we're going to take these books but give them an actual focus and purpose rather than some willy-nilly 
pointless tie-in that means nothing for nobody, right? For sure. So. Well, it's interesting you mentioned that. So that was a like a preview ash can uh, that they, they they gave out, and it's interesting what it do, like. It, it does kind of give you a mission statement. It's so vague, and some of it, I'm like, you know what? It's not really what it says. But it sure. was, but it was definitely a way of of teasing it to people. Mm -hmm. that we're about to give you all new books. You know, we got Weapon X, Cables, X Men. Like it very clearly says, this is what your book is turning into. So I do appreciate that. Um, it's a nice little kind of glimpse into what you're about to get, uh, and it gives you like the the black and white cover of um, X Men Alpha as well. Which was definitely this. This was their way of saying like this is this is exciting. Professor X is dead now. Kind of a spoiler for Legion Quest. Um, you know, read this event. Um, no, for sure. And so let's talk about X Men Alpha then. Um, this is this was the kind of the big beginning of the storyline. This is where you should I guess start. Although I was talking to Paul I guess last week, and I was thinking you know as much as I like X Men Alpha, it kind of doesn't need to exist in some ways because I feel like. It introduces you to the world, but I think Astonishing X-Men does much more of a, a job of setting out the actual mission statement for most of the books. Because most of the books kind of spill out of what happens in Astonishing X-Men number one, where Magneto kind of sets out, this is where everyone needs to go, these are the, you know, these are the, the tasks at hand. Whereas X-Men Alpha kind of gives us an idea of the world, but doesn't necessarily set up the books themselves and what they're going to be. I don't right, really... that's what I'm saying. Like, start with Astonishing X-Men. I don't think you need to start with anything else. Um, although it has such a shiny cover, how can you resist it? <laughs> it was so shiny. <laughs> although the crossing might be shinier. <laughs> yes, I think it might be. Uh, it's interesting too because, like, as um, X Men Alpha, reading it now, it feels very like played out. Like the idea of that all these corpses on the ground and someone like kind of traveling through the corpses and like you know going up a hill of corpses. But at the time, this is I'm surprised they got this past the the comics code. Yeah. Like. We're kind of desensitized to this kind of stuff now, and but and I guess at the time they were used to kind of Terminator. That kind of ethos was out there, so it wasn't like it was a big surprise. But the, considering the Comics Code Authority typically was so constrictive, I'm surprised they were allowed to do some of this stuff. And the fact that they're even allowed to use words like "culling," like it, there's a, it's very violent, it's very dark. And I'm I, I learned that word from this. That's exactly. I've never seen the word "culling" before. When I when I hear that word, I think of X Men, which is weird. But there's like there's some like messed up stuff in this book. It's an interesting again way of kind of introducing the characters. But again, I don't think it's necessarily as consequential as just reading Astonishing. Although there's some stuff you don't get um, if you just jump into the respective issue number ones. But in, in terms of like the actual the X Men themselves and the externals, etc., you can kind of just get Astonishing and get enough to go on. Yeah, I, I personally, like we were talking about this before, about how we started to read it and how we kind of filled in the issues later. Um, you know, and Paul even alluded to the idea that there were other cross-media stuff that was kind of getting our attention and maybe drawing us into what this was. I remember seeing an action figure of, uh, I think it was a Wolverine, uh, a Weapon X, uh, from Age, Age of Apocalypse on the store shelves in Toys R Us. And I'm like, what the heck is that? And, and then with uh, Overpower, the game uh, Paul and I were playing at the same time, you'd get morph and morph looked nothing on his hero card like he did in the x-men cartoon show nope. and i was like what what is this and then eventually there were other age of apocalypse characters that got put in there so you know we all kind of came to it it, it, it either in pieces or after the fact and i feel like you know i gave this to my wife amber to read recently uh when i got these collections and she started reading it and she's like you know what it just i i don't really i don't I'm really feeling it like i like the ideas but i'm not really feeling it and i started her with volume two which is 
you know, um, X-Men Alpha. And I'm like, maybe that is not a good way to start. I think starting with Astonishing, maybe giving her all four issues of Astonishing would be the better way to go. And then if it catches her attention, she might go, I'd really like to learn more. What are the other aspects of this universe that I can learn more about? And I, I, I wonder to myself if these collections aren't possibly the worst way to read this. <laughs> well, it's interesting. Now, I don't know the exact reading order, but I know that they did change some of the reading order in the new versions of um, the Age of Apocalypse collections that they've issued. Uh, I know that they've eliminated a lot of the extraneous material that was originally in the complete uh, Age of Apocalypse Epic Volume 1 before. Uh, but yeah, it's a good point. Like, maybe X-Men Alpha isn't the best place to start people. It's 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 interesting, too. Like, it doesn't have... You get a bit of a thorough line in terms of Magneto's story, but everything else, you kind of just get random hits for no reason. Like, you get a shot of, you know, what's going on with Havoc and, and Dark Beast, but you don't really have context for it. Like, there's a lot of... It's basically a preview book, but feels a little bit better than some of the preview books we get these days, but it still leaves a little bit to be desired because there's no context given. You're just kind of all these quick hits without really understanding why. Um, I also don't know about the versions of this of these releases, these collections, but I got the first collection that I, they, I guess they did in the modern era. What's the date on this? I'm just I'm mentioning this because some of the scans of the art is, is really bad. This is 2005. The collection's from 2005. Yeah. Um, you you have the updated ones, don't you, Adam? I don't have the updated uh, trades. I do have the omnibus, which uses the updated scans. Okay, because yeah, I I think that this I did a disservice to myself buying this before even really reading reviews because some of these scans. I mean, Paul will get this. Looks like they scanned it from this with an old you know '90s printer and put it onto an overpower card. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, it, it looks like a copy of a copy. It's washed out. The inks are really not dark, and uh, the colors are not vivid on some of these. And then some panels, it looks fine. So uh, I would recommend if you're going to pick this up, definitely try to get the newer omnibus or the digital copies. Yeah, uh, and again, the newest printed version, there's three volumes instead of... There's like a, like a Dawn and a Twilight, which has a lot of extra material, not necessarily the original material. And then the actual original event, I think, is three trades, so it's a little bit slimmer. Um, and I would recommend those. Or the Omnibus, which is fine, too. It's interesting, um, when you talk about actual reproduction quality, um, the worst um, offender is actually the Age of Apocalypse Prelude trade, which has Legion of Quest. Uh, because it's done on kind of just regular paper. It's not glossy paper. Oh, which, like newsprint? Yeah. yeah. Which, oh, no. Which is extra, <laughs> well, which is extra bad, because if you think about it, Back in the 90s, when these issues were first coming out, you, most X-Men issues came out in two different formats. There was a deluxe format, which was on glossy uh, which is what I read. paper, and then there was uh, the regular newsstand paper. Yes. So yes. the trade, which is which was published like four years ago, maybe, uh, has worse paper than the original comics that came out in 95, which is yeah. horrible. Like There's yeah. some details, like I was talking about with Paul, the last page or double page spread of Cable 20, he could barely read it. Because it's this shot of uh, all the X-Men, and then in the back, you kind of get to see all these faces, but the colors don't bear it out in newsprint. You just can't see what's going on. So it's really poor. So the good thing is that X-Men um, Legion Quest, those four issues in Cable, are in the uh, new versions of the X-Men trades, I believe, that reprint Age of Apocalypse. They're also in the Omnibus. The extra uh, content that was also in the Prelude, however, is not available anywhere else. So you, you can't really get everything the way you want it to be like i i spend a lot of time on collection forums people talking about this type of stuff and unfortunately with age of apocalypse in order to get kind of get everything you end up with a weird hodgepodge of different formats 
and in- inconsistent production values, which is really unfortunate. It's the same way, though, with Onslaught, isn't it? Uh, Onslaught, I would say, isn't as bad. I'm sorry for derailing this talking about quality. I just thought it had to be said that if anyone was interested, maybe they should consider digital as the best version. No, absolutely. Well, how's the Omnibuy here that you've got? Now? The, the Omnibus has the, the best scans so far. Like, it was an improvement over the original Complete Onslaught, ep- uh, sorry, Age of Apocalypse Epics. The thing I'm not sure about with the digital copies that I have... Actually, the digital copies I have, I have the single issue, so I think the scans are of the higher quality end. Because for a while, like... Even, like some of the stuff on Comixology, you think they would have updated scans, but sometimes they're actually older scans. I know that this is true with a lot of masterworks that are out there. That um, some of the Marvel masterworks that they've done, they had the original versions, and then they had newer versions, which have uh, cleaned up some of the original production errors. But sometimes the digital copies will not be the most up-to-date versions of that. They'll actually be the old scans. So digital is not actually perfect either, because you don't always know exactly which version you're getting. And sometimes, depending on the service, sometimes if you uh, go through, I think, was it through Amazon directly, you end up with a better quality image sometimes, or Google Play, I should say, than actually through Comixology. This is some of the stuff I've I've learned in the last couple of years. Uh, I also wonder how many people coming from the movies are... Done a disservice because they see Age of Apocalypse and they go, "Oh my gosh, I want to get that comic," and then they realize it's nothing the same. Or Age of Ultron, and they go and they read something that's nothing alike. Um, this is kind of a doozy. This storyline, if you've seen the X Men uh, Apocalypse storyline from this last year, although I'm sure there aren't a ton of, fun, of fans of that to want to come and transfer the comics. But if you were, I guess <laughs> you're going to find something better, more interesting, maybe. Yeah. And uh, the best way to buy it, I guess we've done our best, our best due diligence to give you different alternatives to, on how to buy this. But uh, I still think even if it's an om- on- omnibus, um, maybe get an issue. Maybe if there's a sale, just try one issue, and I would recommend Astonishing perhaps, and may- maybe Weapon X. Like, I don't know. Is there anywhere else that you'd think they should start besides Astonishing? Do you think Weapon X is a bad a bad choice? Um I think Astonishing is the best choice. I think the two main X books are the highest quality titles. I think Astonishing and Amazing kind of were the best. Um, Weapon X is enjoyable at times, but I feel like you need a giant like sign on top of it that says that this is the '90s. This is over the top craziness. Like Cubert Art is good, but his version of Logan is so over the top. I love the wild hair he gives him. I love it. It's so intense. Like that guy's hair would take forever to do. Yeah, it's brilliant. <laughs> But like, and like, there's unfortunately there as we we're gonna eventually kind of skip over in some ways. But there is a lot of garbage, not garbage, not a lot of garbage, but there is some stuff here which is not as enjoyable or not as high quality. I'd say if you wanted a quick, you know, what the, what are the best four? I would say I would agree with you. Astonishing X Men, Amazing X Men, Factor X, and I would say Weapon X are the four that I think you should read if you're gonna read them. I would agree with that. I mean, I think there's a, there's a, a bunch of reasons for that, but I think just the, the creative teams on those seem that they had a better handle on the story that they were telling and the characters they were using, uh, whereas some of the other ones, they go, they either try to do too much or um, they're just not coherent reads. Like, for the life of me, I've read it multiple times. Generation Next is confusing. Like... Like Paul, you've re- re- you were rereading a lot of this material for this episode. Yeah, can you tell me can clearly and concisely what happens in Generation Next half the time? Well, no, it's it's kind of weird having like Shadowcat and Colossus be these very aggressive drill sergeants. Very hardened, yeah. yeah, yeah. Like they're not 
very different characters from what you know, and you get, you get some of that here, like, obviously some characters are not the same, but, um, just their attitude toward these kids is, is very, uh, unexpected. Yeah, absolutely. No, actually, I have, a, I have a question in terms of reading order, guys. Um, X-Men Alpha happens. We're, we're, I mean, really, it's just a quick hit. You get introduced to a lot of the main characters that you're going to see in the different books. What's the first issue that actually starts the event in terms of the reading order in the uh, com- complete epics? No, you, but you want to you want to avoid Volume 1, don't you? Like, they go back yeah, to have, the beginning. Volume 2 now. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, in Volume 2, but after X-Men Alpha. What is the first book that's reprinted? Now you get the Chosen. It kind of gives you a brief... Okay. of the characters can kind of set you up on what you're walking into. Okay, and what's and after that? Generation Next is the first okay. one. Okay, because I, I, I've seen that in my omnibus too, and I'm like, I don't, I can't imagine why Generation Next was kind of like the first book that's printed. Um, I'm sure there's a reason. I, I guess technically Magneto hasn't shown up and done his stuff with with uh, Colossus and Magneto yet, but it, it it's a weird, like, if I'm reading this, I'm like, this is not where I want the event to really start. <laughs> I think it, it may have something to do with the fact that uh, this is the beginning of the investigation of Magneto and the Stranger, who is, turns mm-hmm. out to be Bishop. That this this kind of wanderer has come in and is making claims about another reality, and they start to. I think I think the investigation is made the most clear here. Mm. On that, uh, can I take a stab at what the story, what Generation Next is about? Absolutely. Because <laughs> I this is from a guy who hasn't read it. I don't I don't think I've read it for since these came out. So 2005-ish. Um, so they're training the Generation Next, which I'm going to call Generation X, yeah. at the beginning. And you find out that their training is very violent and this is a brand new reality. And, like, acid gets used on Colossus and Kitty has claws reminiscent of Wolverine, right? And they, they almost kill these kids in their training. Yeah. And then I remember Colossus giving a, a speech about... This is the Brave New World or something, right? And then they have to, like, rescue kids who are prisoners of the Sugar Man. Yeah. And they sneak in, and the Sugar Man is this blob man that has multiple arms and has a a prehensile tongue that can... Also is, like, a razor-like tongue that can cut your face off by extending it. And then Paige Guthrie has to go and pretend to be the jailer and seduce the jailer or something. And then they fight Sugar Man, and then they get away, right? And they escape, and then they run to Apocalypse. They meet Magneto at Apocalypse's Citadel for the final showdown. Is that what happens, or am I missing something? You got most of it. Um, they're not just after kids. They're after Ileana. Uh, the idea is that... Oh, it's Ileana. The idea is that... It's always you know, Ileana. Colossus thinks that, <laughs> Colossus thinks that his sister's dead. But she's actually alive, so they have to go and save her because they need her because of her abilities to do whatever Magneto's machinations are, so they have to go save her. Um, And that Colossus is very single-minded in wanting to save his sister. So at the end, he ends up leaving behind the children of Generation X. They all get slaughtered and killed. And then it's just Colossus... Spoilers. Spoilers for a 20-year-old event. (laughs) 25-year-old, almost, storyline. Spoilers, yeah. Basically, the works nice, though. Um, so Colossus basically escapes with Eliana, but everyone else is dead, and then him... Um, everyone else? It's just him and Kitty and Eliana at the end? Yeah, that's it. And uh, Sugar Man. Sugar Man uh, <laughs> jumps in... He tags uh, along. Colossus's boot, and then they yeah. end up uh, going to uh, the events in X-Men Omega. Yes, I forgot that he can embiggen and shrink. Yes. What a terrible character. I don't know. I my imagination was captivated by him. That they they made him like the boogeyman. There was a lot of these scenes. That's true. And 
where he was in the shadows and like they would, they would like I think there was a song or something or a chant about the the sugar man. Yeah. Um, and he would these kids were terrified of him. He'd come around, he'd mess with them, and perhaps it was even darker than him just terrorizing them. Maybe he was doing even worse things to them. So that that it, that introduced me to something incredibly dark. And I I did not read almost any comics by Chris Pachalo at the time, and I'm still not a fan of his art. But I I do find that. When you have a reality that he's introducing you to, um, his art is all the more confusing. His panel work is usually very creative, but um, confusing. And when you are establishing a new universe and trying to give us the rules of this new universe, and I have a hard time telling what the panels are, I can see why it would be uh, difficult to understand what Generation X is even about. Absolutely, yeah. Because, I mean, yeah, it's not necessarily like that densest story it's just sometimes the art is confusing as to what's going on and some of the characters like Vicente I think was the name of the jailer um yeah but I, I there are some a lot of good things about the series I mean um I, I kind of like this weird kind of sexy but messed up version of uh of Kitty Pride. um oh no she's super sexy and like kind of the sexiest version that we've had of Kitty Pride. um it's like uh, Dark Annie in Community or something like oh yeah something about a darkened version of a, of a heroine is something is more attractive about her. I don't know what that is. Some kind of weird so, complex I have. So Paul and I, yeah, that's interesting. Uh, Paul and I are looking through, so I have the omnibus open, and he's got the complete um, epic collections, and there's a, a very stark difference in the coloring that was used in the collections um, for Generation Next, uh, particularly issue number one. And it looks like... Um, I guess like the the omnibus should be the more correct version. So I guess it's a very dark color palette. Whereas in the trades, they really lightened it up. Yeah, it's like washed out. Almost, um, yeah. So it kind of washed yeah. out some of the um, the creepiness. So I think um, if you're going to do anything, I guess get either the most up to date version of the trades or the omnibus, so that you get this more accurate uh, presentation of what this material should look like. Yeah, the trades are are in general quite washed out indeed. Um, I, I one thing I mean, Magneto shows up here. I love that ridiculous long hair that he has in like in mm-hmm. like you know almost like from. like a double ponytail, one on each side. Is it weird that outside of the hair, he didn't get much of a redesign? Um, that's making recognizable because everyone else is totally different. Can we talk about who we think designed each of these costumes? Sure. Because because um, I'm pretty sure Adam Cooper did the Weapon X. It, it seems like it, although I'm not sure 100%. But I would be confident if, if Joe Madreira is considered the sole, the mainline designer of the costumes. And then maybe Bacallo had input on, because it seems like a lot of the Generation Next has his kind of weird. But what is, is it Chris or is it Joe uh, speaking of Bachalo and Madrera, who have this obsession with the collar, the big collar with the divots or the rivets on it. What is that about? Rogue has it. Yeah. Sabretooth has it. Magneto has it. Morph, Morph has it. Like, and, and then in future editions of this series, more. But Bachalo did the Return to the Generation um, uh, Age of Apocalypse rather uh, yeah. uh, storyline, yeah. and he, you know he, he likes to do the cones, like giant kind of big rivets as well, or these kind of conal-style extensions off of costumes. I, I don't know why, but it, it's almost like everyone copied Magneto's collar. Yeah. Because it's a, it's, a, it's a thematic thing, maybe? I don't know. That's a good point. I'm not sure why they did that. I mean, I mean Magneto, I think, it, I feel it's less distracting. Because he kind of always had, like, he, he never had the, the, the divots or the rivets on it, but he always kind of had that weird collar around anyway. Um, I guess it was just a stylistic design. It's cu- I'm curious who did it as well. I wouldn't be surprised like, if it was Joe Mad because 
a lot of the characters he's doing, as you said, they all have it. Blink has it, Sunfire has it, yeah, they all have it. Yeah, I, I don't know why that was added to the dress Standard code. Standard X issue, I don't know. But, but, and why, I guess, but why did he not get any type of change? I think Magneto didn't need one because he designed his own costume before. Like, before, like everyone else's costumes in the X-Men line, Professor Xavier started no, the, the but original... No, this is before he became Magneto. Yeah, but I'm saying Magneto, like, ended up... Like, why would he have... If he was always destined, like, okay, in the regular reality, he creates his own costume at some point in the future. Why wouldn't he still create the same one? Like, nothing's changed for him. Besides, I mean, like, obviously, yes, things have changed for him. But in terms of his design sense, nothing's changed. Like, he designed well, his own costume. He is kind of obsessed with Xavier. Like, one of the things I find interesting about this, though, is that um, he kind of um, venerates Xavier. Um, this is before their big falling out. In this storyline, this alternate universe, Xavier's killed by his son. And again, in the storyline, um, Legion's trying to kill Magneto to save what he thinks is his father's dream. He accidentally kills his father instead. And so the, Xavier is ve- much venerated, almost worshipped by some people in this universe, particularly the Eric. He talks about him as the saint of a man, almost. Yeah. So you almost think that he would try to make his costume more Xavier-like. Like I don't. Maybe he should shave his own head. <laughs> right. In commemoration of Xavier. <laughs> instead, he has super long hair with uh, with braids in it. Instead. Yeah, I know. I dig the braids too. Um, but I think that just having him use the exact costume, maybe there should be some differences because Magneto is changed dramatically in some senses by the death of his best friend. Maybe the reason why is that I mean they're 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 radically redesigning some of these characters. They, they kind of recognize need, somebody. Yeah, they kind of need someone to be recognizable, and not only someone recognizable, but the villain, like the most well-known X-Men villain, is now the primary X-Men character and the the biggest hero in this world. So I think maybe making him look weird or look un, not as recognizable would kind of go against what they're trying to do. They want you to know it's Magneto. Like they they don't they're not as worried about everyone else. They want you to know that this is Magneto. That's a big theme here because, as you said, like he. He becomes a hero because of the loss of Charles. Um, it's interesting. This is almost like Shakespeare with time travel. Let's not go that far. Well, I mean, it's Shakespearean <laughs> themes, like the, the idea, like it's a it's a very interesting kind of high minded theme that this this man, like before, as you said, before this falling out ever had a chance to occur. Back when these guys are still friends, uh, something happens, and how does that kind of affect the relationship or uh, the perceived relationship? And so he elevates this man who's passed away to being a saint and trying to do everything he can to honor this man, knowing that if it was if I mean he says it a few times that if he was left to his own devices, he might have been a very different man. So he might have sided with the. I think he says at one point he might have sided with apocalypse yes, if he yes. was. Yeah, that he might have come across like on a totally different side. So it's interesting that he's able to. He's very much the philosopher and thinker in this storyline, uh, in a way that he's never quite been to this degree. I guess I just mentioned the costumes because I find, and you can agree or disagree. I'd like to hear your thoughts. Uh, whoever did each of the costumes, the other artists who are expected to draw those costumes can't ever seem to get them right. That's true. Like, whoever, whatever Joe Mad did with Rogue's hair, making it kind of like a saw blade mullet thing, he actually makes he actually makes a mullet look really good in Astonishing X-Men, but everyone else draws it like a mullet, and she looks horrible. And, you know, uh, Jean and her ruffles, like the kind of folds in her clothing, um, I don't know that Epting quite does it the, the way that, uh, that Kubert, Adam Kubert can do it. It just seems really uneven, and it feels like each artist kind of said, I'm going to do it this way. And the only costume that consistently looks amazing 
is Sunfire oh. <laughs> for some reason. The best I, redesign of them all. I think you're you're right there because looking at it, like I, I'm just thinking that there's some costumes which, like, some people, some of the artists make like the Gambit redesign, which is ridiculously overcomplicated considering what he should be yeah um, he's got bandanas and scarfs and belts and it's too much yeah but like some of the artists make it look good like Joe Mad kind of doesn't okay he doesn't do it much but he only has like a panel or two and he looks great and then in his own book he looks very complicated they all do don't they like Lila Cheney and uh, Strong Guy I feel like that is all perhaps from that artist who did what, what happened to Strong Guy he like, like let's take Cyclops' visor and Cable's <laughs> arm and the Hulk and mash them together and here's what you get like I thought it was Cyclops I'm like what happened to Cyclops and then I found out insane Cyclops yeah and the, the proportions of the guy in the, in, like I know Strong Guy in general is, is insane with his proportions but wow and I, I guess with all those belts and straps, it does make them look. This is Gambit of the externals I'm talking about now. They they look like the ragtag bunch of adventurers that that fits that suits the theme, I suppose, or or the 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 mood of this comic, this adventure to space to get the MCOM crystal or the Macron crystal. Um, I, well, I don't know. The, the jury's still out on those those names, right? Because is it Kazar or Kazar? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm not sure. They've been pronounced differently in different cartoons, so whatever, just go with whatever feels good. But I uh, they all his design, like sun, sun, Sunspot, looks cool. I Sunspot looks amazing. Yeah, he looks well. It's interesting too because this is back during the time when uh, I think it's been retconned that he wasn't. But at the time, they were kind of saying that Sunspot was also the villain name known as Rainfire. So the design here is very much like a Rainfire mm-hmm. design. If you remember that character, I do. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know what happened to, to, to Strong Guy. Jubilee looks terrible. It depends. It, it's inconsistent. Sometimes she's okay. Sometimes she's terrible looking. Oh, sorry. That is Jubes, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, that makes sense for her. I'm fine with it. Yeah, she's got she's got like a little hood, and when she puts her hood on. She looks really cool and very adventury. It's very fan. It's almost very fantasy. I know they're going to space, which is very science fiction, but their garb is very fantastical. Like it looks like they're wearing tunics. They're wearing a high boots. They're wearing these. You know, in many ways, if you don't count strong guy who looks ridiculous, it looks like they've just thrown capes around themselves and yeah. they wrap their hands up in in, in leather wrap. Like it, I don't know. It's got this almost D and D kind of sensibility to it. Um, when you're talking about characters that don't always. Look Look right, depending on the artist. Bishop seems to be one who really uh, is subject to the artist's whims. Because some there's some shots where Bishop looks great and very like kind of you know what, what's what's up with this character, very mysterious. And there's other spots where he looks absolutely awful. Like I think Joe Mad designed them because Joe Mad does a good version of them. And it's just a simple design, though. It's just this is he's got a. But why can some people get it so wrong? I don't know. Actually, and going back to Gambit and the externals and the the cover of issue number one, uh, if you look at Gambit's costume, if you disregard the, the kind of the the red cloak he's kind of wearing, isn't that basically Cyclops's costume from a lot of the two thousands? Like the astonishing, like if you look at the ribbing, it kind of uh, reminds me of what Cyclops wore during Whedon's run. Like it kind of. Oh, okay, I see what you mean now. You, you, yeah, yeah. yeah, if you take away the cape and you just look at the kind of the blue and you got that kind of the gold or uh, yellow piping up, there, yeah. it kind of looks like what Cyclops wore later. I see a little bit of that, but I think there are enough other elements that... Yeah. I, I get what you're saying, though. There's, no, there's so, no giant X belt buckles, thankfully. Should we Should we talk about just really quickly what each of the side books are about and then as before we go into the more details on plot like should yeah, we cause I me- I'm sorry I meant I mentioned Gambit and externals but and really briefly what it was but uh, you know I don't think we're making it clear why there are different books and what their point is well, well actually before we do that so I'll say like 
not only what the books are, but also what they replace, because that's important. Because okay, like so, start with that. Start with that. So, Generation Next obviously replaced Generation X. So, so there's no surprise that that's why we have certain characters there. Although, you know, Colossus and Shadowcat are characters who had no real affiliation with that series at all. Uh, so it's kind of interesting that they got shoehorned into that book. And yeah, rather this, than Banshee and White Queen, you have two completely different headmasters. Yeah, as, which is kind of an I, I would love to kind of go back and have a chance to talk to Scott at some point to be like, you know, what? Why did why did these two characters end up being the leads? Because they weren't the leads at all in anything at this time. Like, uh, I mean, Shadowcat was in Excalibur, but she wasn't like the most prominent character, and Colossus had been an acolyte, like, there had been a lot of weird stuff happening with Colossus, but he hadn't kind of come back to Earth yet, so these characters were not front and center, and suddenly they're front and center characters here, and as we said, like, they're the headmasters of this new team, and it's interesting, too, that, you know, Scott had just brought Generation X out, and now he has this alternate reality version of the characters, and within four issues, they're all dead. Like, that's kind of messed up. Yeah. But it does, I mean, I, I do appreciate when you do that and you show the, the power of the threat. Uh, whenever you have a world like this that's super dark and you don't ever, maybe that was the point of talking about Cullings. Maybe that was the point of Shiro Yoshida's storyline, Sunfire, being so incredibly dark. You see him flashback to pools of dead Japanese bodies, um, you know, like really, really incredibly dark. And then when you have main characters die, it really helps the ante. And it makes me hope um, that when the, before they do Avengers Infinity War uh, in the next little while, my hope is that Thanos is going to be killing some people who are big deals. Um, some people on, online have hoped or theorized that Thanos will kill the Guardians of the Galaxy after the second movie. And that, you know, they can undo it once inevitably Cap gets the Infinity Gauntlet, right? Like what <laughs> happened. Uh, but... Imagine that. Imagine him killing the, the 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 guardians, and then when he comes to Earth, you're like, oh my goodness! Like this is an incredible threat. Because up till now, he's just been in a space chair, right? <laughs> so to see what the infinites can do, and to see genocide or Holocaust or whatever his name is do these to people, uh, beating you know down Sabretooth within an inch of his life, but to kill the kids, this next generation of mutants have been slaughtered. I think really ups it, the ante and makes it really feel like it's a dire situation. Absolutely. Well, it's nice that when they have a, uh, something like this, which is an alternate reality, I mean, there's the joke that a lot of what-if stories in the actual what-if comic always ended in the most depressing scenarios possible. Like, there's only ever been, like, one or two issues of what-if that had a happy ending, uh, that somehow one little thing has changed and suddenly the entire universe goes to shit. So it's nice to kind of see here that, yeah, that, that there are, you know, repercussions. People die. Uh, and yeah, and the way that they killed off the kids is still harrowing. Like, Colossus basically kind of chooses his sister over these kids he's been training, and then it's very affecting when he lets them all die. Like that, even though the the series itself has its issues, the last couple pages are, are definitely hard to read because he just lets them all get murdered. Um, well, is this is this kind of the same um, vein or culture or, or or trend as what started back with Days of Future Past? Is this not a huge ode to Days of Future Past in some ways? Um, I guess a little. I mean, yeah, because I mean, obviously, yeah, Days of Future Past, you have a few people dying, but it's a few people. There's more impl It's implied death as opposed to kind of on-panel death and seeing as many people die. Uh, but yeah, you're, you're right. It's definitely taking it to the next level. Um, is this 
because I made me think of it instantly. I'm like, this dystopian future where they kill X-Men, and like, where did they do that first? And it was really Claremont's days, especially that famous shot, or infamous shot, I suppose, of Wolverine being having the meat blasted off of him. Like, that has stayed with a generation and grown up with, I've grown up with, as, you know, the generation after that of comic book readers that's seeing it constantly. Um, can you guys think of any other, like, Storylines where this is like I thought I've thought of several and and see if you can agree or disagree or add to this idea this list of what Age of Apocalypse really has influenced or affected or been affected by. Um, I'm thinking of Days of Future Past for Marvel. Yeah. I'm thinking of Ultimatum. Yeah. Where like slaughter of people and just so dark that everyone thinks coming to an end. I'm thinking of Secret Wars or at least the lead up to that as well, where the universes are crashing into being destroyed, and you get to this again dystopian planet where you have the wall and these zombies inside of the wall, and they can't wait to break out and kill everyone. I'm thinking for DC maybe a Flashpoint. Yeah, I could um, see that. It was definitely and, a dystopian. Yeah. And maybe even also Injustice, that video game where it's essentially like Flashpoint, an alternate reality where heroes that are good have gone bad. Like, yeah. is this not are, – are these other storylines perhaps not also along this continuum, this line that was started, I suppose, by Days of Future Past? This, this sliders, what if, alternate reality, it's dystopian and everyone's being killed or some people who are alive are dead and people who are dead are back alive again? No, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, like, Days of Future Past kind of created its own genre in comics, like – no one had ever really, ever really done it that way, um, and I mean, it's no no coincidence that it came out around the same time as you know in Terminator in the movies. Like you have those types of things. I think those types of movies more, more impacted something like Age of Apocalypse in terms of its kind of narrative sense, uh, trying to put back right what was wrong with the world, which we have seen in events like Flashpoint. Um, they had that not very good storyline in the X Men books. Um, Age, was it Age of Age X, X, which was definitely kind of trying to do a riff on this type of stuff. This is probably my favorite and largest, most ex- expansive version of that concept. Well, uh, the Ultimate Universe, too. Yeah. Right? As a whole. Yeah. What do you mean? Like, well, isn't, isn't that Ultimatum? Well, no, yes, it is Ultimatum, but the genesis of the Ultimate Universe itself was is a big what-if story, too. Let's, yeah. let's, let's, mo- let's do a modern take. Let, let's get away from the convoluted continuity of everything. Yeah, but... Start fresh. But it's not a dystopian No, world, it's, no it's not, but... It, 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 it is darker, though. It is darker. It's, it's, but it's still a different world, right? True. And at, at one point, I was enjoying those rings there more than what was actually happening in the quote-unquote 616 at the time. Oh, that, well, I think all of us were. Yeah, yeah. That, that was kind of the problem. And then the minute that the... The, the kind of the ship got righted and we started actually having good books in the 616. Yes. That was really why the Ultimate Universe was going to end up dying, was that suddenly the regular Marvel Universe was telling good stories again and people wanted yeah. to read them. They killed it so slowly. Like, it was like such a miserable... Well, Ultimatum was like they killed it and they're like, well, we're not quite done yet, but we should have no. been. No, no. Like, I'm, I'm sorry for distracting. This is a great conversation, but I'm sorry for distracting you from the before thing. Adam was going through the books and saying what they replaced and we got as far as Generation Next. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, okay. We have, we have Astonishing X-Men, which is, I would say... It replaced Uncanny X-Men, which is definitely the flagship X-Book of the time. Um, it had the top, like one of the top flight creative teams, because you had Joe Mad, who was definitely really big at this point, um, kind of one of the yeah. apexes of his career in on the X-Men. Um, yeah, I'd say this is the beginning of it. Like, he's really rising now, and I think it culminates with uh, Onslaught. I would agree, absolutely. And, th- and this is some big stuff, too. I mean, like, there's a reason why, for years, because of Joe Mad's work, there's a reason why people wanted Blink to be back. Like, Blink was a character yeah. who originally showed up in, in the... Um, Exiles. 
Phalanx Covenant. Oh, sorry. Originally. Phalanx Covenant, yeah, for like a panel. Yeah, and didn't matter at all. And suddenly nope. this character showed up here and was like this fan favorite, and people wanted her so bad, and then eventually... She's awesome! Well, absolutely. The way that uh, they write her here and the way that she looks by Joe Mad is a huge part of what kind of sells her as a character. So when you eventually got Exiles in, I guess, what, the early 2000s, it's because of this book. Like, this is the launching pad for the Blink character. Um, which, again, like they take a character who was a nothing and made her into a big deal for a long time. She's such an elf, too. She's so, like, a Nightcrawler light, almost. Like, she's this um, a teleporter, and she has these kind of energy knives that she can use to create portals. Yep. And she has this tunic, this long tunic that makes her look very elf-like. She has pointy ears as well, I believe. Yep. Um, it, it's almost like Joe Mad was trying to do a little bit of Battle Chasers before Battle Chasers was Battle Chasers. <laughs> yeah, um, I agree he, with that. He seems to really like fantasy stuff, and it seems to kind of uh, influence a lot of the style he puts into things. So Astonishing X-Men, for the most part, just um, we, we get to see a team, it's Rogue's team, basically, and they have to stop a culling and go up against Holocaust. That's basically that, yes. that book. Um, right. Obviously, there's a lot more detail in there. Um, the first issue is kind of, it's kind of weird and disconnected because you have a lot of setup to the other books, like I mentioned before. Like, yeah. you understand what, like, what ends up becoming Amazing X-Men. You see right, a, a because... You meet the different team, some of the team members, right? You meet Nightcrawler there. You meet Banshee, no Quicksilver, sorry. Yeah. Right, and, and Storm, right? So you meet, you're meeting some of the different team members, and they kind of split off from there, don't they? Absolutely. A little bit, yeah. Gambit comes in there too, and um, is, is, is Colossus in there? Like, are they all in there for that? No, I wonder. Colossus not in there. Like, no, but some of the major books, the, their leaders come in and talk to Magneto. Oh yeah, well, there's um, there's a there's a page. Where it's a full page, like um, almost a full page shot of Magneto and Nightcrawler's kind of in the shadow, and it's a lot yeah. of text uh, kind of dump. But at the end, like you, you get to see what everything is doing. Like you have at the bottom an editor's note, and it's like, check out Amazing X Men One, Excalibur Number One, Generation Next. Like he's leading right. everyone into all the different books. You understand, you know, where Nightcrawler is about to go. You understand where um, um, I'm trying to remember Nightcrawler where... Storm. P- um, P- where Peter and Katya have been going, like yeah. it's, it's all it's kind of there, and you also get again a nice concise retelling of what happened in Legion Quest in three panels. So if you didn't want to read those four issues, there are three panels that tell you what happened in Legion Quest. And why wouldn't you do it here? This is the as you said the flagship X Men book. This used to be Uncanny X Men. Mm-hmm. This is going to have the most printings of all the books printed of it, Absolutely. and more people are going to read it for sure. Um, and yet, and you get a nice introduction to all the characters that really end up being fan favorites here too like morph is a character because of this like yes i mean it's interesting because i think um this is something that's not in the trades but it is in the omnibus um they reprint the letters pages not letters pages sorry the um there was a news page that went through every x book uh every month called i think exposition um and in one of them it says you know which of these characters and it gives these three old school 60s characters and which one of them is a big yes. character in the current run and it was changeling who they had refashioned as this morph character which is right. like really interesting and this is the morph everyone loves um so when you get a book like exiles years later they have a morph who's very closely patterned after this version he's not actually this version but he's pretty damn close to it 
Yeah, this this issue, Astonishing One, and I know we're going to go through the books um, a little bit after we introduce them, but introducing me to Blink, uh, again, I hadn't read that, that Generation uh, X issue where she dies, and uh, Iceman becoming one of the coolest characters I've ever seen, oh even from a few panels. Absolutely. And Sunfire. Sunfire coming out of that portal as a nuclear like bomb? Just That's a poor choice of words. Uh, he's Japanese. As a big bomb? Like That's really, really... Those characters, I want... I could, and, and he, I think those are the four. Sabretooth, uh, Blink, Iceman, and um, and Morph, perhaps. Like uh, I'll stop talking now so Paul can go. <laughs> I'm still here. Uh, no, the, the, the Sunfire uh, redesign, I, and, and the whole Bobby thing, making him this complete... Um, Ice God. I, yeah. Yes! And I, I love him with no lips. Like, him with, like, the Optimus Prime face mask type look. <laughs> I love it. And I had an action figure of it. I absolutely adore that kind of badass powers to the max. You know, and they they always keep talking about circling back to this for Bobby in reality. And, you know, even his, his current book around the corner is coming up. It's going to deal with his sexuality and yeah. him becoming that high-level mutant that they showcase him here at. But... I don't, even, I don't even buy they're going to get there with him in the new book, but seeing him and being this real credible, powerful mutant, it really blows me away that they went to these, these lengths with him. Well, it's interesting, yeah. too, because we kind of, like, in the in the regular books at the time, they had had the issue where Emma Frost took control of his mind and did things that Bobby couldn't do on his own, so you definitely had him dealing with the fact that he'd never reached his potential. And then we get to see this version of him, which is, like, light years beyond anything we'd ever seen him do, which is, yeah, very cool. And we get to see... Uh, whoever would have thought that you, you relaunch all these X-Books and you have these alternate reality takes on them, and suddenly Sunfire and Iceman are two of the, like, most awesome characters? Like, no one would have thought that was was possible. It's Sunfire. Like, no one likes Sunfire. I like this Sunfire. Um, one thing I will say about the last page of Astonishing X-Men number one before we move on to the next kind of uh, overview is um, when... Rogue's team kind of takes off to stop this culling, and you have Bishop just kind of watching. I almost want to take that entire huge page of dialogue where he's talking to Quicksilver or whatever. I just want the one shot of him watching, and I want it to be Magneto's line from the final decision in the X-Men animated series, which is, uh, the brave row is the first to die, because it seems oh, like... Oh, that's a great line. Because it seems like that perfect moment. Like, that's what Bishop should say. Instead of all this dialogue, <laughs> he should just be like, the brave row is the first to die. That's it. Because that's basically what this entire page is saying. It's my drop, my way. Yeah, because that's one of my favorite lines of dialogue in the X-Men animated series. Like, it's so perfect. Uh, Gambit and the Externals replaced X-Force. Now, this is the kind of the weirdest book that it's really not much like anything that it was replacing. Like, X-Force was its own animal, and instead you have a book where you have Gambit, who has no affiliation with X-Force, no. Strong Guy, who was an X-Factor character, Lila Cheney, who had a, kind of a little bit of a connection, but not much, to, she has uh, a little connection with everybody. Yeah, but like not much of a big one. Uh, no. Ju- Jubilee, who was a member of Generation X mm-hmm. and the X Men, and then I guess like Sunfire Sunspot. is the only Sunspot. Uh, Sunspot. Sorry, Sunspot is the only real connection to the previous X Force. So this is the one that's the biggest kind of deviation. And it's interesting that they decided to give Gambit his own book. And I do like that it's called the Externals because that's kind of what they were going with at the time. It's it's an interesting book, not not the best because it's the weirdest. Like. It's the one that goes into space, which is, in a lot of ways, the kind of the most classic kind of crazy X-Men soap opera, but you take the weirdest group of characters to do it. Um, and, wh- and it's almost like it's almost like Magneto is sending them knowing that they could fail. Like, the prophet or the stranger or whatever you want to call him, Bishop, comes and says, this is what happened, 
and the M-Crumb Crystal, which is the nexus of all possible realities, is what you need to get, and then we can kind of solve this, and we can return back to the original timeline. So Magneto goes, okay, so this guy comes in and is telling me all this stuff, and it sounds really good. I'd love for there to be a world where I don't have to worry about my son, you know, Charles dying, or my, my, my daughter, um, Scarlet Witch is dead in this universe. She, she didn't die. Um, so he's kind of... Um, this swan song, or, or this, sorry, sorry, siren song almost of bishops, uh, tantalizes him and he sends a team into space, probably against his better judgment, because he knows that they're needed for the war, but he sends Gambit, because Gambit is the former romantic interest of his wife, Rogue. <laughs> so it's almost like, and you, Adam brought up something Shakespearean before, it's like he's sending Gambit on the worst possible mission, <laughs> the one that sounds good, but is probably just a wild goose chase, to die. And he can get rid of Gambit, and you know what I mean? Absolutely. No, it is interesting, and, like, he kind of sends the least powerful members of everyone he could call on, too. Like... Whoa, you're talking about Jubilee? For goodness sake, isn't she, like, the best, as the 90s cartoon would suggest? <laughs> Don't mess with Jews. <laughs> like, it, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a weird book. It's interesting, too, that, like, technically, shouldn't the Emicron Crystal have been absorbed by Ken? Like, if the X-Men never got involved? Yeah, you'd think, eh? Like, I mean, I, there's a lot of kind of weird issues like that that kind of crop up, but we're not supposed to think that closely about it. We're just supposed to kind of watch the ride, and it's kind of fun seeing the Imperial Guard, but again, the external shouldn't be able to do anything. And, like, no. this weird version of Richter is not, is kind of, like, my least favorite version of Richter. Very creepy smile. The yeah. costume is insane. Yeah, and it's like a lot of people have ponytails in this world, too, like... I guess because they, oh, they're extreme. Yeah. <laughs> they're very extreme, and they can't get barbers, so like this is just what they do. This is very early Tony Daniel art too. Like I love Tony Daniel. As I was, I was, men- I was making fun of this uh, before to Paul, but this is before he became Tony S. Daniel. He's still Tony Daniel at this time. Um, extremely stylized. Um, there's not a lot of detail in some of his panel work, though. Like you have super ripped characters, but like the facial work is very scant. Weapon X, one of the best ones. Um, but this is like, and, but it's mostly because of its attitude. I mean, at the heart of it, it's a romantic. It's a it's a romance plot, isn't it? It's a romantic story. Well, is it though? Really, only the first two issues are because then Jean's gone. Yeah, but I mean, that is the soul of it. And even when Jean is gone, isn't Logan doing it for her? Like, isn't that ultimately everything that he's doing? Because yeah, he's yeah. so in love with her. That's true. Um, now, like the the first issues cover. Um, all the ridiculous, like, kind of metal on Jean is so, like, so of the period, but everyone else, well, everyone else at least gets, like, straps and stuff. She gets, like, metal straps. Should we say that this replaced Wolverine? We said that, didn't we? Sorry, I didn't actually say it, but yeah, this replaced Wolverine, so you have the same creative team, Larry Hama, and you have uh, uh, Adam Kubert, who was very over-the-top during this period, and it fits this storyline more than anything else he did on the book. Because it's supposed to be extreme. Yes, yes. He comes off of the amazing X-Men, oh, sorry, Wolverine 90, which I mentioned before, which I still think is one of his finest works. I think that is one of my favorite Wolverine books. But he was supercharged in that. The machismo, the testosterone in Wolverine 90 was through the roof, and it it works very well in this dystopian future. Absolutely. And it's interesting, like, we, in Weapon X, we get to see a little bit more of the world than we see out elsewhere, actually, which is interesting, because, like, in, in Astonishing and the other main X books, you don't necessarily get to see what's happening with, you know, Europe or anywhere else that's not, like, North America. Like, it's nice to kind of see a little bit more of a, you know, 
Apocalypse hasn't taken over everything. This is where the humans are. You got this Eurasia Council. You get a little bit more of a, a, a sense of what the rest of the world is doing um, and what the humans are doing, which is kind of cool. Um, and, and it's a weird book too because again it changes because the the first issue is about you know um, Wolverine and Jean kind of escaping um, this you know being behind enemy lines so to speak going back to Europe bringing these plans back to the council that they got from uh, Sinister and then the second issue they're attacked by Donald Pierce and uh, they're trying to figure out what you know the the Eurasian Council is going to do against Apocalypse and then. Gene takes off to, to go find Cyclops, basically. And then so Wolverine's alone. He ends up going after Gateway with Carol Danvers. And then issue four is the, everyone kind of marshalling the troops, the um, the human troops, to do this last-ditch attempt uh, attacking Apocalypse, which we don't actually see much of in X-Men uh, Omega. Like, it's, it's kind of like off-panel that there's bombs being dropped and that the whole world's about to blow up. But we don't actually see much of that. We just have Wolverine trying to find Jean at that point, knowing that she's somewhere in the kind of the heart of uh, Apocalypse's territory. And it, it's very much, like you said, it is all over the place, but it almost feels like a Team X book. Like, this is the Black Ops group of mutants in this uh, world of Apocalypse oh, yeah. doing these different missions, and they're always death missions. Like, they say it to each other repeatedly, like, this could be our last run, darling, or we could die. And they're like, let's do it. Like, they're, they're really living on the edge here. They are. Now, and again, because everything has to be extreme, Wolverine is missing a hand. We, we didn't mention that, but that's pretty, uh, pretty, pretty big. And uh, as a kid... When he finally, spoilers, pops the claws out of that stump, you're like, what? Which... Well, and that, that also kind of dovetails into Factor X, right? Which replaced uh, X-Factor? Yes, it did, yeah. Which that... So the story the storyline there is that uh, Cyclops and Wolverine fought years ago, and um, I guess Adam will talk about the brief when he does the brief introduction to Factor X, that uh, Cyclops essentially is on Apocalypse's side now, is raised as one of the brothers, the Summers brothers by Sinister, but that... They fought, right? Did, um, Wolverine brought, broke into a facility to get Gene out, yep. and they fought, and Wolverine cut off one of Cyclops' eyes, making him a true Cyclops, yep. um, and Cyclops burned through or blasted through the adamantium hand and took off Wolverine's hand, which mm-hmm. now, I don't think any one of us... That we debated about that, I'm sure, with any of our friends saying that, that I can't see that a concussive blast taking out adamantium. There's no way, but I guess everyone is ramped up to eleven in this world, so the optic blast was the best optic blast. <laughs> yeah, and it was the last time he'd have two eyes to do it. Yeah, yeah. He removed the visor. Yeah, but he must have done that. Yeah. Just taken out of the entire facility with it. Well, so Factor X replaced X Factor, which is it's kind of a dumb name, but whatever. Um, not that the others are so great, but it's interesting, too, because this is, like, the only one that kind of really gets behind enemy lines, so to speak, um, where we actually get to see kind of the villains. Um, Epting was a great choice for this, but it's so grunge. Like, this this entire book just feels very 90s. Everyone's got the long hair, except for Havoc, actually. But everyone else has, like, this ridiculously absurd long hair that Epting does better than anyone. Uh, he definitely does this certain look. Um, and it served the Winter Soldier really well, didn't it, years later? Oh, absolutely. Like, I mean, if you look at Cyclops, if you took off the eyepiece, he's basically Winter Soldier, right? Like, he's, <laughs> he's kind of got the metal arm-looking thing. Everyone on. is kind of Winter Soldier in this book. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's true. Um, this gave a very, like, uh, everyone kind of remembers this version of the Beast, um, which is a very, like, he's still gray. Well, it kind of changes throughout the book, but like he's he's very much like the gray original kind of beast when he's tinkering with his abilities, and it's very inconsistent whether or not he's wearing 
like actually got mechanical parts or if he's just wearing like metal pants like metal pants yeah because when he escapes the Marvel Universe uh, sort of the uh, Age of Apocalypse and shows up later and actually takes over for the, re- the real Hank McCoy by then I guess he's just dyed his, his, his fur blue and he doesn't have metal pants anymore so no one notices so I guess he doesn't have metal legs but it definitely looks like that in this book but this is basically like a book of Cyclops um, ha- growing a conscience deciding he can't be part of you know, all this experimentation that's happening on mutants. And so he's going to try and break people out of the pens, try to give them an opportunity at a better life. Um, it really comes down to the sibling rivalry between Scott and Alex, because Sinister's always favored Scott. He's never really given Alex the same level of um, of credit or, or love and affection. Isn't that everybody? Yeah, well, yes. <laughs> Havoc, no one loves Havoc. Uh, not like Cyclops, but he's very much the underdog here, so he's such a dick, a raging dick, because... Yeah. Of- You're a raging dick. That's <laughs> a porno name, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it would be. But, like, he's very, like, he, he, he has such a huge chip on his shoulder, something to prove, and Cyclops is realizing that what he's been doing is wrong and he wants to save people, uh, which actually kind of connects with another book, which is X-Men. And at the same time, you have, you get a a greater sense of what's kind of going on in the Apocalypse uh, design territory where you find out that there is a nightclub that kind of allows humans and mutants, uh, but humans are kind of Almost like sex objects, and certain, like Scarlet's definitely kind of portrayed that way. They're fetishized. Absolutely. And like Havoc has a relationship with a human which isn't allowed and gets her pregnant. Which There's a lot of kind of we- interesting kind of things kind of going on here that you wouldn't necessarily expect. Um, I actually really, again, I really like Factor X. Uh, as the book progresses, um, Cyclops' kind of treachery is, is rooted out and he teams up with Jean Grey to kind of, you know, uh, free everyone from the pens. Um, so this is, again, an interesting view at what happens within Apocalypse's America. That- I'm wondering when you're, Adam's going to get to the view that uh, is, the, I think it's his least interesting view, if you don't count uh, Generation Next, which would be Excalibur. Is that next? Uh, I don't know. Is it next? Let's, let's- are, are you, is that your least interesting storyline? Yes. Yeah, okay, I was right. Uh, well, yeah, well, actually... No, well, okay, in theory, I really love Generation, uh, sorry, uh, Excalibur, but in practice, it's just not that good. Um, and Excalibur replaced Excalibur. Well, hold on, we're not there yet. But this one's for uh, an X instead of an EX. Yeah, that's, well, don't even get me started, hold on. So, X-Men is, oh, that's next. Okay. replaces Cable. Um, now, this is, again, one of the most interesting concepts because Cable obviously can't exist. Right. Um, like, Cable has a very convoluted history, but if Gene was never cloned, like, there is just no Cable. So I thought, I actually really liked the idea that Jeff Loeb kind of put together in order to come up with a character who basically is what Cable is in this world, but is still very different. So we have an idea that when Gene was captured, um, Sinister got to do what Sinister does, and he got to kind of mix together the genetics of Scott and Gene to create this child, who is his plan to destroy Apocalypse, basically. Um, Cyclops ends up actually freeing X-Men from the pens, not realizing that he's basically his father, even though, man, uh, Sinister's so good at aging people artificially, like... Because that shouldn't be possible. But basically you have um, uh, this Nate Gray going on the run, which I don't even know how he gets the name Nate Gray. Is that ever explained? They just gave him the name, even though like there's, they're not even pretending that he's not related to his mom. Like, um, And basically he's part of this weird like troupe, this theater troupe, led by Forge, which again, these are characters that really don't have a lot of connection with Cable. Um, 
I, I guess Siren does. Siren becomes kind of his love interest here. She's obviously a member of X-Force back in the main universe. you got a weird version of Caliban. Uh, you got Sauron. Like, it's a really eclectic group. I really like this book. It's it's very different from kind of the rest. Is you just have these kind of people on the run. Uh, Mr. Sinister goes on the run from his own kind of position as being one of the four horsemen and ends up kind of trying to take uh, keep tabs on basically his weapon against Apocalypse. Um, in some ways, it, it doesn't have a great sense of direction to it, but I still really like it because it tells, I think, a pretty strong story of this boy who didn't didn't have a proper childhood and then kind of becoming part of this kind of new family that he's uh, part of and also meeting a new father figure who's Forge. Uh, it tells a very strong story of that bond, and then when Forge dies, Forge is always going to be an important part of his life so that for years afterwards, they would always have kind of flashbacks to show how Nate was affected by that relationship with his father. Which is interesting because character, this character doesn't have a father of his own that he knows of, anyway. What do you think of X-Men, Cable? Uh, Cable. I just called you Cable, Nate. <laughs> Thank you! I, well, at least that's, I didn't call you the wild man of Borneo. Well, that's still my name. Um, <laughs> I like Cable a lot. I don't like X-Men very much. So I did not read this book. I think I read the first one, first issue. And I don't like Steve, Steve Skose or Skose or Skochi or whatever. I don't like his art. I don't care for it, so I never really read them. And even with the trades, I got my trades, and I just skip over the X-Men stuff. I, I know who he is. I like the idea. I like that they created the new character. Um, he essentially is Cable, but younger, so he doesn't have the legacy virus. Um, he has all of his power, and he doesn't know how to use it because he's a young man. And eventually he ends up joining the X-Men in their final assaults on Apocalypse, and he's one of the few who gets carried over into the 616 universe afterwards. So um, that's, that's, how, that's it for me. Like, I, don't, I don't have much to say about the series. Paul? Um, I like X-Men to a certain extent. The name is very uninspired, obviously. Um, what were they going to call it? Nate Gray? Like, the cable doesn't exist. Like, as no, the, I, I get it. The way we know him at all. Like, yeah. Instead of cable, they could call him string, or I don't know what's a, what's a smaller cable. <laughs> That's awful. <laughs> Fine. Um, yeah, I think that was one of the books that was missing from the initial run that um, I had read. So I didn't have a lot of exposure to it in this universe. I've you know obviously I've I know of Nate's um, adventures in six one six when he came over. Um, I don't know where he is now. Uh, he was ba- he was dead, then he was back, and then he was depowered, and now who knows where he is. Okay, fair enough. Like most yeah. students these days. Yeah, if you look up on Wikipedia, everything's depowered. Um, yeah, not much to say, really, to be fair. All right, Excalibur. <laughs> so, so in- well, this, uh, this has the most fantasy aspect to it, doesn't it? Like, they've Absolutely. heard that there is a place in the world where uh, mutants are escaping this Avalon. Which is and, Avalon, um, isn't it? There's a savage land, yeah, and they're trying to get to this oasis, aren't they, right? And they have a spy, a, a, a someone sneaks in with this group that's, you know, going from station to station down South America, um, meeting people, hooded people, passing along credits, I don't know what they use, monies to get to Avalon, they're, they're, they're trusting people who are, who are telling them of this place, it could not be there, it might not exist, they could have their ships sunk, or they could get there, and there's nothing but someone with a gun, um, and eventually, you know, that whole storyline, which I, I know, I guess Adam is right, it doesn't really go anywhere, but 
you get to see characters like Nightcrawler and Mystique in, in a different way. Uh, Nightcrawler being very violent this time around, rather than the pacif- more of a pacifist, I suppose, the or at least a gentler version. Um, and you- uh, a, a new juggernaut who is completely a pacifist, right? He's a monk. Oh, I, I actually um, love that version of the character. Yeah, and uh, ultimately, I don't want to spoil too much, I suppose. Maybe we'll get to that later. You've got Dead Man Wade, who's a kind of an interesting version of Deadpool. Um and it doesn't go anywhere. I mean, what what what, they don't, what is the mission that Xavier gave Nightcrawler? Why is he participating in this? To get Mystique and Destiny. Yeah, it's Destiny, it's, really. Oh, it's Destiny. That's what it is. That's they, right. They need Destiny. <laughs> Although, again, even with Destiny, why do they need Destiny? Because she sees the future, not the past. Like, it's it's kind of weird. But I guess they, in order, if they get Destiny and they have her with Ileana, they can... Like, how is that even supposed to work? They're supposed to use the Emcon Crystal? I think crystal? that Magneto does not think the Emcon Crystal is anything, and Gambit's going to die in space, so you <laughs> might as well get two of the most powerful mutants and actually help them win the war. I think that's really the more practical aspect of his plan. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that you say that, you know, Excalibur is kind of the, a little bit of the more fantasy-oriented, um, besides maybe the externals, because, well, that's more space. Um, but you have. A- I, I mean, their clothes for externals was very fantasy. Yeah, and th- and ultimately the mission is a hero's journey, isn't it? You have, you know, you're in your ordinary world. You cross the threshold. You have assistance. You have trials. Like it is very much hero's journey. Uh, it just happens to be in space. Yeah, it's interesting too that you know you have a, a version of Nightcrawler who's not in any way the swashbuckler. Yet his entire thing is kind of predicated on him being a swashbuckler for this event, like. this journey he takes on the submarine and everything, like, it's very much trying to to tap into what we know of him being the swashbuckler, yet having a version of him that's not really, like, like, geared that way. Um, He has a sword. I don't think he's really a swashbuckler. He just has a sword. He's more like Luke Skywalker, just hacked, you know, chopping wood with that lightsaber, you know, just hacking up sand people, you know? He's very much... Uh, sword happy and de- teleporter happy too. This has uh, introduced me to some very violent teleportations, like decapitating people by teleporting the head off their shoulders, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. That made me rethink how powerful teleporters were. And for a while there, my favorite power would be to get teleportation. What's interesting too is that you have a version of um, of Nightcrawler who never seems to be like winded by his night, like by his teleporting. Like that's the version we were kind of used to. Was that this version that e- gets easily overtaxed? Yeah, this version well, never really gets overtaxed in the same way. And that's true of most of the characters. I mean, even Dazzler is using like pinpoint laser beams to fire through people's bodies or through armor plating, and you know, an Iceman that can teleport through the the atmosphere along water crystals. And you know what I mean? Like everybody's amped up. Yeah, she like even one of the earlier issues. She's uh, does a whole training seminar, and it's all like hard light dummies through her powers, right? She can stand there having a smoke, and she's just providing all the uh, yeah. full training session to deactivate the sentinels or whatever it was. Lots of smoking going on in this universe. Yeah. Oh yes. Well, and it's interesting. So Excalibur is actually written by Warren Ellis, which is an interesting kind of surprise because you don't think of Warren Ellis on X Men books, but he did have a, a like a lengthy run on Excalibur. Um, I don't know, something about this has never quite jived for me as much as I wanted to. I mean, in theory, on like, if you just told me, you did just kind of tell me what the, the idea of the storyline was, it's really interesting. But when you actually go through the issues, it kind of loses it. It's not as, uh, it doesn't really have a strong sense of what it wants to tell. And maybe, it, it, It's not tight. It should be tighter than it is. Yes. It feels a lot looser, and uh, although, again, there's some interesting characters that are used, um, 
the idea of you know trying to you know, get destiny's kind of interesting as well as destiny's kind of realizing that you know a lot of death is on its way um but let's move on to uh amazing x-men so this replaced x-men um and uh this is a really good book like the, i mean andy kubert is brilliant um it's written by fabian nisiesa um, this is the book where Iceman really gets to shine and do awesome things. Uh, Exodus gets to do very little considering his power level. Um, but his powers are so ill-defined. Maybe he is doing something the whole time. Maybe. Maybe he's been telepathing the whole thing. <laughs> he mentions in the books like, that I'm not sure what his powers are. Yeah. Which is weird, though, because we already had seen him in Blood Ties. Like, he'd already been around. He'd already done stuff. Even if they were relatively ill-defined, we at least had... Um, him doing certain things, so we, it's not like we didn't have any idea of his capabilities that, based on things he'd done, yet in this book he gets to do very little. Um, this is one of the best renditions of Banshee's costume that redesigned that he got, which is so awesome. Good. Like, everyone looks awesome here. Um, yeah, Dazzler looks awesome, although her costume is, is kind of the most, like, overtly... Um, like kind of X-Men-ish, like in a classic way. Like some of the other uniforms, they look like someone threw them together because it's wartime. Uh, hers looks a little bit different. Well, both she and Banshee are the ones carrying the blue and gold colors. Yeah, it's kind of weird. And like Storm's got a lot of sashes going on. She's got a Japanese, almost like um, samurai look with the belt and then the shoulder pads kind of split with the V in the middle. Yeah, very true. Um, very samurai looking. Uh, but th now correct me if I'm wrong if I can remember this right. Amazing X-Men is they're trying to shut down a cult of Madrox, of Madry, right? Is that what they're doing? Yeah, they basically, they kind of tie into what goes on in uh, Weapon X uh, issue 2, because they're trying to help, uh, basically, the Sentinels touch down to try and save humans that have uh, gone to this point to try and get, you know, brought to Europe. And so the X-Men are going there to try and make sure that uh, it goes off without a hitch and that they're able to pick right. up all the humans. And then in the middle of that, then you have um, a, a group. Um, I can't remember what they're exactly called, but basically, yeah, it's a it's a group of militant mutants who work for Apocalypse, uh, trying to kind of stop them from saving humans, basically. Uh, which is, it's got like copycat and a bunch of characters that, to, to be honest, I forget who they even are. Yeah. Sasquatch? It looks like Sasquatch, but he's not a mutant, so who knows? <laughs> But like, and as a kid, this was like I read issue one, I had that, and I didn't have issues two and two and three for years. Um, issues one and two are really the only ones that are actually focused on this this event. Issue three is then a throwdown between uh, Apocalypse and Magneto, and then issue four is kind of a nice little tie-in where you have Bishop um, being rescued because he was abducted in uh, in, in X Men, um, and then it kind of just leads into X Men Omega. So. Again, this book is not as clear in terms of its mission because you have the first two issues doing one thing, third issue doing another, and then the fourth issue tying it all together. And I guess that and now there were other titles that were part of this. Um, though this is where, based on the version of the reprinting you have, you may or may not have the content. Um, I can, now I can't remember if it's called Universe X or X Universe, but there was a two-issue miniseries um, that focused on what the humans were doing at this point. All right. Um, which, now Paul, you said you'd never read this before. No. Did you get the chance to read it, or? No. Alright, so that's, it's a little bit more about what the humans are doing. Um, so Gwen Stacy's a freedom fighter. Uh, of course I love it, just for that. Um, she's working with, like, Don Blake. 
Um, you see a lot of the kind of traditional Marvel characters are there. You have appearances by Daredevil, uh, or, sorry, Matt Murdock, and who who's a bad guy at the time. You see Victor uh, Von Doom and Iron Man. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You also get to see um, uh, Wilson Fisk, Norman Osborn, Arcade. Like you get to see a lot of the kind of the the non-X-Men characters show up in that book, and it gives a little, it flushes things out a little bit more. I don't believe it's actually in the omnibus. I think it's one of the pieces of content that was removed. Is um, it also the only place you see uh, Mikhail Rasputin? I believe it is. You see him mentioned elsewhere, but it's the only place he actually shows up. And I should probably also say for those people who are listening who don't know, um, in this universe they have several villains who have teamed up with Apocalypse as his... He calls them prelates, doesn't he? Yes. But he does mention them. He says that they're his horsemen as well, but usually they're called prelates. So there are four... Okay. Okay, can I, can I try something here? Yes. Huh. Um, I want your help to describe what exactly happened in this universe, and I, and I want to use something that captivated my imagination, and I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast how this influenced me as a high school student and, and the projects that I did. So um, there's this amazing map called in X-Facts at the beginning of each issue, or at least in the first month, and um, it says January 1995. Look at this. And it's a map of the world, and it shows um, that North America has um, been irradiated because the southern tip of it, the Central American portion of North America, has been blown to smithereens. Um, South America is no longer connected to North America anymore. Mexico, the bottom of that's gone. Everything else, Belize, Honduras, they're gone. Uh, Venezuela has been torn to pieces, and they're now – it's just chunks. It's just chunks of what used to be the world, and you've got these symbols of irradiated areas. You've got an irradiated Brazil. You've got an irradiated Saudi Arabia. Um, France is mostly gone. I, I, I don't know if you're seeing this map as I'm talking about yeah. it, but yeah. – um, this completely just – I was like, what What happened? This is I'm, – I'm looking at this map after reading Astonishing X-Men number one. I'm thinking to myself, what happened to this world that would do this sort of thing? So this is kind of, again, captivating my imagination in, in, in politics class or English class. Whenever I had chances to write about things or potential futures, I would always think about this kind of thing, about how dramatically different our world could be if nuclear war was actually permissible. And my mind kind of just ran with this. So you see – and I – after I mention this map and talk about it a little bit, I want to try to piece together what we think happened after uh, Apocalypse started to take over the world. Because then I, what I'd like to get to is to end up with why the humans are where they are, what the Sentinel program is, um, who these horsemen are, what the cullings were. Like I'd, I'd like to kind of do a, a bridge between what we never ever see, really, and the beginning of the storyline, so that when we get into more detail about what they've been asked to do maybe their missions make more sense and i want your help to fill in things that i've only wondered about and maybe you have some thoughts on is that okay yeah sure okay so this map has canada my homeland has been you know eastern canada is under the direct control of apocalypse all the way down to you know uh, the gulf of mexico so the whole eastern seaboard is is as Apocalypse's land, and you've seen that North America has been carved up into sections. This reminds me of um, Old Man Logan almost, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. You've got 
uh, Holocaust, Abyss, Mikhail Rasputin, and Sinister are his four horsemen, apparently. And uh, they've each got a chunk. You've got Sinister uh, around the Great Lakes, and uh, Mikhail Rasputin, uh, the north kind of western port, central portion of the United States. Abyss has Texas in the north Mexico, and Holocaust controls the eastern, uh, the western seaboard. And all around them is this giant wall that seals them in. It's called the the uh, what is it the the Sea Wall, I think it is, right? The wall. It's perimeter security. The Wall of Apocalypse. The Wall of Apocalypse. And uh, we see that in uh, Weapon X. And it wraps all the way around this now kind of almost island, North America. And then everything else north of, I guess, Alberta and, you know, mid-central BC is this giant wall that he's been made. That he's made. This Badlands. There's a second. There's a wall. I guess Trump made it there first and then Apocalypse <laughs> took over. Uh, and everything north of the wall apparently is dismissed. They're, the humans who live up there, apparently they live, you know, free from his control. And then it says the Badlands, it just says scattered human settlements. So what's left of our country, essentially, is scattered humans in Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta, right? Yeah. And then you have the main human resistance and settlements seem to be whatever's left of Europe. You've got London has a capital human council. Mm-hmm. Near Ireland and Scotland still has – is part of the security grid, the human so, – so the world is divided into this kind of mutant society in north, what's left of North America with humans that are still there and uh, northern, Af- northern and western Africa and Europe. And uh, you've got all these ideas of sentinels are apparently patrolling the, the, these areas that humans live in. To Sentinels are used to try to stop this, this threat of, of mutant takeover. Um, so what I think happens is, you know, essentially Apocalypse leap launches this war on humanity, and there's no Xavier and X-Men to stop them. And apparently the Avengers also either never – I think it's clear from Universe X that the Avengers never get together. Yeah. So there are no real heroes to stop him, and humans just use their weaponry to do their best. And it looks like at some point in time, humans launch nukes against Apocalypse. That's my guess, that the humans would have done that, and that they obliterated their own land and made areas they call like the the atrocity zone. It sounds like there were atrocities, perhaps, in Brazil, and to stop him, they launched nukes on their own people, kind of like what happened in the first Avengers movie when they tried to destroy the Chitari by killing Manhattan. Um, and and through this war, humans have developed these incredible sentinels as well that we find. Um, sentinels so sophisticated that they can even shoot their hands off of their hands yeah. uh, themselves. Like, what's, who's that character from Weapon X? Kane? Is that yeah. him? Garrison Kane, yeah. You fire his hands out of his... So... Humans have been culled. We learned that from the Shiro Yoshida's flashbacks that Apocalypse went around saying survival of the fittest is the best way we're going to do this. And he he killed mass, millions and millions of, of humans in these death camps, which gives us a kind of a flashback to World War II. Um, and in the midst of this, he would find mutants that, that he would save, he would take out from the cullings and then turn them over to Mr. Sinister, who is his geneticist. And he would either release or unlock the mutations inside of them or tamper with their mutations and make them into horrible, horrifying creatures. Uh, Does all this sound right so far? Yep. 
and now the world is divided into a human council who uses technology to help themselves survive. You've got Apocalypse who has taken over North America, killed half the planet, and is using survival of the fittest as justification to essentially commit genocide against most of the of humans in the world. And they set up their own society into their own kind of economy. You've got Adam mentioned Angel runs a business on the side where they fetishize humans. Um, to be human is to essentially live fear for your life here. Um, and uh, the X-Men in all the midst of this, Magneto, is trying to create a team of mutants to fight against Apocalypse, but he's having a hard time getting the humans to trust him. The humans, rightly so, don't really know how they feel about these X-Men. And uh, you get a few hints of them trusting perhaps Weapon X or trusting Jean here or there. Um, but you see the Human High Council at times, and you've got Emma Frost, who's part of that council, but she looks like she's been lobotomized, like her head's been cut open. And something happened there with her, and she's teamed up with the bat, the the, the Jamie and um, uh, Psylocke and Brian Braddock. The Braddock family is kind of involved in protecting humans. Yeah. And now you've got this storyline where essentially Apocalypse has decided he's going to do a final attack assault on the humans, driving out anyone left in North America. And isn't the idea he's going to make an attack on Europe? Yes. And so this is like the last days of this war between humans and mutants, and Magneto becomes desperate to stop it and save it. And in the midst of all of this, you know, his daughter, I mentioned, had been killed years before. His, his existing son, uh, Quicksilver, is still alive. His young son in this universe, he's married to Rogue. He's named, they've named him Charles. Yep. He's worried for the life of his son. And uh, this stranger walks into town and says, this is all wrong, and I can, I can help you find a way to get back to the old universe where Xavier's still alive. Is that... What have I missed? Uh, not a lot. Um, there's bits and pieces of the kind of previous world that we can see in the uh, Universe X book at the end of the book. There's these quick snapshots which are given uh, about certain characters and why why they aren't present, basically. And it gives us a bit of an idea about what was kind of going on when uh, Apocalypse first took over. Like, for example, under um, uh, for Reed Richards... And, uh, and John Storm, because we see the other two uh, elsewhere. Uh, they're presumed dead. And it just says, Renowned for his strategic genius and tactical prowess, Dr. Reed Richards led one of the earliest escapes from Manhattan Island. Along with Ben Grimm as pilot and Susan and John Storm as crew, Richards attempted to evacuate a full contingent of human refugees in his own experimental transship. Uh, but a mutant saboteur interfered with the launch, and Dr. Richards and young John Storm apparently sacrificed themselves to save the others uh, from the forces of the apocalypse. So let's, we get an idea that you know something happened in New York when Apocalypse was actually taking it over. So I, I like these types of things because there's we get eight of these um, these little mini things at, at the at the end of that particular book, uh, which is really helpful. And we also get a little bit more of a sense of what happened in the um, uh, the map that you that you had mentioned. We get a little bit more of it. Uh, just showing in a little bit greater detail. Uh, for example, like there's a, the Bay of Death in Europe. Yes, yes. Um, which is kind of very creepy and crazy. And Paris is like an island now, uh, surrounded by the Atlantic Ocean, because so much of the Earth has just been... Like that, my knowledge of nuclear devices might not be that strong, but my understanding is is that they, they you know, it releases an atomic explosion, or the energy inside of, uh, of atoms, and then irradiation after follows the explosion because of the nuclear fallout. But the idea that this much landmass could have essentially ceased to be suggests it's either been sunk below the, the ocean, you know, the surface of the ocean, or mutants were involved. 
involved in sinking it, um, or the kinds of explosions they're using are just rocking the the earth so heavily that it's just folding the earth in on itself like it really paints this incredibly dire picture that not only is the fight between human and mutant desperate but it's killing the planet like the fact that continents essentially like the entire middle east mm-hmm. and northern south america are uninhabitable because they're irradiated with so much of these explosions um it's well, just terrifying what's interesting about that is that we get i mean i, I always led the assumption that it wasn't nuclear that actually destroyed those pieces of the world because the otherwise that'd be an irradiated zone in and of itself the fact that you have in as an irradiated zone you know areas that are kind of apart from that i just led to assume it's just another thing that happened yeah I, i'm not sure myself like i don't think it's very clear because um you know again central uh america north south america are the island they're turned into islands much of the land is missing and there's an irradiation symbol but over um you know where kuwait would be there is an irradiation symbol, but there's no landmass missing. So it does seem like they are independent of each other. But either way, something really horrible happened there. Well, and we know, and we know that uh, the, um, uh, the apocalypse took Wakanda and took Vibranium because we know that T'Challa is dead. Again, from right. one of these pages that he's killed in action. So the idea that like he kind of made a, a hit list of all the best places in the world to take out and kind of you know just went after them. Like Namor is dead. Um, there's no one to kind of be around. So because Namor is dead, Captain America never came out of the ice. Not that he would have been able to do anything. <laughs> well, so what? The Spagos begs the question: What's the overall end game after all this? So let's say Apocalypse succeeds, eliminates all the humans. Then what? You have this barren wasteland of a world you've conquered. That's exactly what he wants. But I don't think he really cares half the time. He just wants the strongest to survive. I think it's just like they they kind of. They don't really give him a good sense of what his end game is, but I don't think he cares. Like I, I, I honestly think that like, he, he just wants the destruction. He likes it. He like he likes the death. I, I don't think he maybe even has an end game. I don't think he even cares that they come at him with bombs. Like he just thinks he's gonna weather it all. Well, there is a sense though that he wants to rule, isn't there? I mean, not only does he have his four horsemen, which he calls his prelates, but they're constantly at odds, fighting for power and for politics, and he's constantly trying to kind of. And it's made clear also these aren't his original four horsemen. This is whenever a horseman dies, he just replaces them with someone else. Yeah, yeah. Um, but there is a sense that he does want to expand his empire, and perhaps the idea is that I mean, ultimately the the the, the fits survive, and then. He wants to make a world where mutants rule, and perhaps mutants then can use their powers to. I mean, how many mutants can absorb radiation? How many mutants could fix the land and terraform it? You get Richter in there with uh, Sunspot, and you could, you know, absorb radiation and fix the land. Like I, I feel like he doesn't even really worry that he's. The sense is that once you kill all the humans and make the best mutants, that that in and of itself will make a better world, and that is this. Because uh, isn't he ultimately the complete antithesis of Xavier? Um, Magneto is a different opinion, but Apocalypse is there is nothing better than evolution. And Xavier is trying to manage evolution. He's trying to say, look, evolution is great, but we can't just – once that evolutionary change has been made, you can't just kill the other species. We need to use negotiation and democracy and and, all these kind of ways to integrate. And Apocalypse is – no, he is – Evolution run amok. It is is. There's no stopping it, and we should push it and help it along to its uttermost. So I feel like he is this force of nature, and he's been characterized as this very goofy kind of villain. Also, at times when he has that big A on his belt, <laughs> but 
the idea that he is, you know, he, he is fine with Sinister using science to manipulate the human genome and code and create super mutants. To him, that's all part of evolution and it's it's part of the natural ex- extension. And I guess his idea is that is a good in and of itself and that that is what will save our our society, our race. And if we have to kill a few hundred billion people or sorry, a few billion people in the process, then do it and we'll fix it afterwards. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. 